his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. This is a government panel, so each of our government presenters will get 10 minutes to present. Again, if you have long testimony, really prioritizing your key points rather than reading testimony is usually a better approach. Um, and then after each of you have testified, we will then start to take test, uh, questions from the legislators. The chairs get 10 minutes for the panel. The rankers get five minutes. Everyone else gets three minutes. And because some people understand this perfectly and some don't, my colleague and friend legislators, when you see you have X number of minutes on the clock, that's both for you to ask and our guests to answer. So please don't ask a two and a half minute question when you have three minutes on the clock and expect that you will get a coherent full answer in the remaining 30 seconds. Sometimes there is not enough time to answer and we will then ask the panelists to please respond in writing to both Helene and I and we will make sure to share that with all the members of the committees. But our goal is to actually leave you enough time to answer questions when you are asked them. So it's a skill set on our part not to necessarily make a speech, but rather to ask a question. And I know we're in the speech giving business. Um, so with that, I'm going to ask Basil Segos to kick us off with, from DEC. Thank you. Good morning, Senator Kruger, uh, Chair Weinstein, members of the Fiscal, Environmental, Conservation, and other legislative committees. It's an honor to be with you today, uh, along with Dorian Harris and Justin Driscoll, um, and uh, certainly to discuss the very exciting governor's priorities for the coming year, and to echo Senator uh, Matera, happy Valentine's Day to you all. Um, just briefly on 2022, it was a momentous year for DEC. Uh, the Climate Action Council that I co-chair with Doreen Harris delivered its scoping plan on time at the end of the calendar year. It was a culmination of three years of extraordinary work, hundreds of meetings, uh, and the dedication of, of more than 300 of our staff. Uh, it was a robust public engagement as well. Uh, we had 35,000 uh, New Yorkers comment on the draft scoping plan. We did 11 public hearings around the state, and what came out of it was a blueprint uh, which will help us build the green energy economy and, and combat climate change. Um, we also, of course, were able to see the uh, $4.2 billion bond act uh, approved by the voters at 68%, which is an astounding and powerful statement about the state's and the public's support for the environment. Uh, now we have a generational opportunity to truly make the state sustainable and resilient for the long haul. And we've been hard at work on an interagency working group 
at the direction of the governor to create the infrastructure behind the act and we look forward to engaging the public and you all in the coming months. We took major actions to protect air and water. Uh, we launched the nation's first ever statewide community air monitoring program in 10 disadvantaged communities around the state that are home to an estimated 5 million New Yorkers. We adopted the advanced clean cars rule to put New York on a path to 100% electric vehicles by 2035. We adopted methane reduction regulations for oil and gas. We delivered a record 1.1 billion in water infrastructure grants. Uh, that was about nearly zero back in 2015. Uh, and a record $1.6 billion in water loans from the Environmental Facilities Corporation. And the governor directed funds uh, to some places that have needed it the most, uh, most particularly in Mount Vernon, where we delivered $150 million to help get that disadvantaged community and its, its uh, badly outdated system off its feet. In the Brownfields Cleanup Program, uh, which again was reauthorized in the budget last year, uh, 84 new projects came in, 53 certificates of, com of completion issued. On public protection, which we are proud to have as a core part of our mission, our environmental conservation officers responded to a, uh, an astounding 26,000 calls for help and issued over 13,000 tickets uh, on issues such as deer poaching, solid waste, dumping, illegal mining, and emissions violations. Our rangers responded to uh, calls for help uh, rescuing 359 people in the woods and helped extinguish 162 wildfires around the state, including in Minnewaska State Park. Um, we also held our 23rd basic school and graduated 38 new rangers and 18 ECOs. Uh, it's my fourth academy as commissioner. I'm proud of the work that we did on that. Um, we also uh, conducted uh, an astounding 230,000 boat inspections to look at invasive species, uh, primarily in the Catskills, but not only in the Catskills. Uh, we managed increased usage, just as the Park Commissioner talks about increased usage, we certainly have it as well in the Catskills and Adirondacks. We created the new Office of Indian Nations Affairs at DEC and uh, oversaw the largest ever land transfer uh, to an indigenous nation in state history. And we appointed our first ever Deputy Commissioner for Equity and Justice. So on to the coming fiscal year, 2023-24. Uh, the Governor's executive budget builds on these milestones and maintains New York's national leadership on many important issues regarding the environment. On climate, the governor proposed an economy-wide cap and invest program that would set a declining cap on emissions with the revenue to invest in the transition of the economy of the future, uh, guided by five important principles. Affordability, linkability with other states, creating jobs and pr protecting competitiveness, investing in disadvantaged communities, and funding a sustainable future. We'll create this program through regulation and we'll work with you on uh, the, the creation of a climate action fund to ensure affordability, which will put money back in New Yorkers' pockets, and, and work to create an industrial small business climate action account to help mitigate some of the impacts on small industrial operations. And we'll be doing this over the course of the next few months, as has been mentioned this morning, uh, with very robust stakeholder engagement. The governor is also proposing another $400 million environmental protection fund, and I thank the legislature for its extraordinary support of this important program over the years. And is, in the same token, a $500 million investment in clean water. That's $5 billion since 2017. Another $90 million for New York Works, which helps to fund our open spaces and our infrastructure. Um, and a Clean Up Forever Chemicals Initiative, which is a $60 million commitment to combat per year 
to combat emerging contaminants at the local level. You think about PFAS and 1,4-dioxane impacting our water supplies. There's also an important Waste Reduction and Recycling Infrastructure Act to address the waste crisis by shifting the burden of waste management from consumers and municipalities to producers. This program will increase recycling rates, save local governments money, and protect the environment. DC's budget also recommends state operations funding of $560.2 million. That's a $66 million increase over last year. A total capital budget from all sources, including Act and water, of $9.7 billion. A record staffing increase of 231 staff. Now 3,322, which would make it the highest level in well more than a decade. And that's on, on top of another 52 staff next year. All of this will support our core mission, our Cap and Invest program, the Bond Act, and the Waste Reduction Act. So in closing, the Governor's executive budget prioritizes the environment as never before. It recognizes the urgency of the climate crisis, our infrastructure needs, and the added protections for water, air, and natural resources. And it positions our state to maximize federal investments as well. I'm grateful to the Governor for her extraordinary support for DEC and for the environment, and grateful to the legislature for its extraordinary support over the years as well. So thank you for the chance to provide testimony today. I look forward to your questions. Next. Good afternoon, Chair Kruger, <coughs> Chair Weinstein, and members of the committees. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. I'm Doreen Harris. I'm the President and CEO of the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, or NYSERDA. And I, too, am pleased to be here today to discuss the many critical climate and energy issues facing our state and our nation. And as you just heard, and certainly as you know, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act established the Climate Action Council and charged the council with developing a scoping plan. And as co-chair of the council with Commissioner Sagos, I am proud to say that after a robust comment period, including 11 public hearings across the state and more than 35,000 public comments, the Council achieved a key milestone in December on time by adopting a final scoping plan. The scoping plan lays out a, com a comprehensive strategy to achieve some of the most aggressive climate and clean energy goals in the nation, while ensuring a brighter, more just future for all New Yorkers. The plan includes approaches that help build community engagement, create job pathways for New York's existing and future workforce, and ensures that the transition to a low-carbon, clean energy economy addresses environmental and energy burdens that have disproportionately impacted our most underserved communities. And as you heard, building on the scoping plan, the governor has now directed NYSERDA and DEC to advance an economy-wide cap-and-invest program that establishes a declining cap on greenhouse gas emissions to fund a sustainable and affordable future for all New Yorkers. Our program here in New York will prioritize five core principles the governor laid out in her state of the state. Affordability, investing in disadvantaged communities, creating jobs and preserving competitiveness, funding a sustainable future, and continuing our climate leadership. Consistent with the governor's core principles, the cap and invest proposal in the budget would establish the Climate Action Fund which would be designed to directly defray the costs of the program to New Yorkers every year, and New York's program will be designed to launch new investments in industries and technologies that can lift up entire communities. 
Governor Hochul has taken bold steps on climate to protect the health and safety of our communities. And that includes tackling buildings, which account for more than 30% of our state's greenhouse gas emissions. The governor's executive budget includes a three-part strategy for the building sector. First, advancing zero emission new construction with no on-site fossil fuel combustion by 2025 for residential and low-rise multifamily buildings and by 2028 for commercial and larger multifamily buildings. Highly efficient zero emission buildings will provide residents with safer, healthier, and more comfortable homes. Second, for existing buildings, the proposal calls for a phase out of the sale and installation of new fossil fuel space and water heating equipment by 2030 for residential and low-rise multifamily buildings and 2035 for commercial and larger multifamily buildings. To be clear, these proposals will not ban existing gas cooking equipment mm -hmm. and will include an allowance for exemptions for commercial kitchens, hospitals, healthcare facilities, and certain other areas. Finally, to help target investments and equip building owners with the data they need to reduce energy costs, the proposal includes a grading system for large buildings statewide based on their energy usage. Making available accurate, actionable data and information is proven to help building managers make informed choices to reduce bills and emissions at the same time. Another of the governor's proposals focused on helping consumers is the launch of a first-of-its-kind $200 million Empower Plus home retrofit program, which will help 20,000 low-income families retrofit their homes by adding insulation, installing energy-efficient appliances, and switching from inefficient fossil fuel heating systems to clean, efficient electric alternatives, or preparing the home to do so. And as we look ahead, advances in renewable energy, energy storage, and clean transportation will provide new opportunities to fulfill New York's ambitious clean energy and jobs agenda. To achieve the state's 70% by 2030 renewable energy goal, NYSERDA is rapidly advancing our work through the deployment of 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind, 3,000 megawatts of energy storage, and an increased goal of 10,000 megawatts of distributed solar. And as we work to transform the way we power our homes and businesses, New York State is currently managing a portfolio of 120 large-scale solar, onshore, and offshore wind projects, as well as new transmission projects, totaling more than 14,200 megawatts, that will be capable of powering 66% of the state's electricity grid once operational and directly supporting over 23,000 jobs. In addition, NYSERDA and the Department of Public Service submitted a new framework to the Public Service Commission last December to achieve six gigawatts of energy storage by 2030, which represents nearly 20% of the peak electricity load of New York State. And last month, NYSERDA received a robust response to our third offshore wind solicitation, with more than 100 total proposals for eight new projects from offshore wind energy developers a record-setting level of competition among East Coast states. And this progress will be bolstered by at least another 2,000 megawatts of land-based renewables that will result from our sixth annual procurement for large-scale renewable energy projects, which is also underway. Transportation accounts for more than three-quarters of the petroleum <coughs> used and nearly 30% of the greenhouse gas emissions generated in New York State. 
Therefore, with the adoption of the advanced clean car regulations, all new passenger cars and trucks sold in the state must be zero emission by 2035. And to further support 100% zero emission vehicles, the governor recently announced more than 12 million in additional funding for the Drive Clean Rebate Program to help consumers save on the purchase of electric vehicles. There are now more than 127,000 electric vehicles on the road, up from 24,000 just five years ago, and more than 11,000 EV charging stations installed statewide. And with the passage of the Bond Act, 500 million will be provided to school districts to ensure their, electric, their buses are all electric by 2035. And to ensure there are union labor opportunities, support for existing and new energy workers, and hiring <coughs> in disadvantaged communities embedded within our green economy scale up, the governor's budget will establish the Office of Just Energy Transition. New York stands to see hundreds of thousands of jobs created through the implementation of the Climate <coughs> Act, but we cannot reach our clean energy goals without the trained professional workforce required to translate these goals into action. So our efforts are centered on career pathway programs that provide education, training, and services to help place new workers in clean energy occupations where demand for workers is growing across all sectors of our economy. This concludes my opening remarks, and I will turn it back to the chairs. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Driscoll. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Chair Weinstein, Chair Kruger, and other distinguished members of the committee committees. My name is Justin Driscoll, and I'm the acting president and CEO of the New York Power Authority. Thank you for the opportunity to appear here today to discuss the governor's executive budget proposal and specifically legislation in the executive budget that would enhance NYPA's ability to help our state achieve the goals in the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act and advance other state priorities. We are guided by the strong leadership of Governor Hochul and the legislature, and the Power Authority is proud to be playing a critical role in advancing the state's clean energy, environmental, and social policies that are embodied in this and other 2023 landmark legislative initiatives. I will now spend a few moments to describe what NIPA does and how we are already contributing to the state's clean energy transition, and I will then address the budget legislation. Specifically, there are three broad components of the Power Authority's work. First, NIPA is an experienced owner and operator of energy infrastructure. The authority owns and operates 16 generating facilities throughout New York State, generating nearly 25% of all power produced in the state. More than 80% of that electricity we produce is clean, renewable hydropower. Additionally, the Power Authority owns, operates, and maintains approximately one-third or 1,400 circuit miles of the high-voltage transmission lines in New York State. These assets help form the backbone of the statewide energy grid for electric power transmission, and they are critical to integrating existing and new renewable energy throughout New York State. Second, NIPA is an experienced supplier of, of energy and energy services. The authority has more than 1,000 customers enabled by federal and state statutes. They include local and state governmental entities, municipal and rural cooperative electric systems, and economic development customers. Our economic development power programs have supported the creation and retention of more than 440,000 jobs and nearly $32 billion in capital investment by businesses throughout New York State from the inception of these programs. Third, 
NIPA is already helping to lead the state's clean energy transition. NIPA has invested more than $3.6 billion in energy efficiency projects at publicly owned facilities throughout New York State. Our energy services programs have resulted in more than $266 million in annual taxpayer savings. These programs have reduced energy consumption in the state by 275 megawatts and prevented the admission of approximately 922,000 metric tons of greenhouse gas. Through our solar advisory services, the authority has enabled over 61 megawatts of solar, 21 megawatts of which has come online since I became acting president and CEO in October 2021. In addition, through both our Evolve New York program and our electric vehicle charging installations at customer sites, NIPA has facilitated the development of 669 electric vehicle charging stations at government and NIPA customer facilities throughout the state. We are continuing to work with our customers to expand EV charging at their locations. Finally, NIPA is playing a fundamental role in the upgrade of the high voltage transmission system in the state. We currently have four major projects, two in construction, two others in engineering and approval. One of these projects, Clean Path New York, a joint venture between NIPA, Invenergy, and Energy Re, will deliver more than 7.5 million megawatt hours of emissions-free energy into New York City every year. Clean Path is just one example of the authority partnering with the private sector to leverage our experience and resources to maximize benefits for New York State. Through our transmission and customer businesses, the Power Authority has established a long track record of collaborating with the private sector to bring public benefit. I will now turn to the Governor's budget legislation. The Governor's Executive Budget Proposal, Part XX of the Transportation, Economic Development, and Environmental Conservation Budget Bill, gives NIPA the authority and the tools to take on an even greater role in the state's clean energy transition leveraging our strengths and enabling us to further collaborate with the private sector when it makes sense to do so. To summarize, the budget bill would, one, enhance NIPA's authority to develop new renewable energy projects that will help New York achieve its climate goals. Two, establish a Renewable Energy Access Community Help Program, or REACH, to provide renewable-based electricity discounts to disadvantaged New Yorkers to reduce their energy costs. Three, Publish a plan in two years for decarbonizing New York NIPA's peaker plants by 2035, subject to adequate reliability determinations. Four, authorize the authority to make up to $25 million annually available to fund training programs for employment in the renewable field. These new provisions will provide the power authority with the tools we need to implement and expand authority in legally and fiscally responsible ways that also preserves the judgment of the Power Authority Board of Trustees. The proposal strikes the appropriate balance on this issue and other important energy initiatives. Finally, I would like to highlight a very significant change in the renewable landscape. The Federal Inflation Reduction Act is now law. NIPA expects to be able to access new and existing federal tax credits provided by the IRA to lower the costs of certain renewable energy projects that it would undertake under the governor's legislation. While the Power Authority pays no federal income tax, the IRA facilitated tax credits, such as the investment tax credit and the production tax credit, are directly payable now to governmental and other non-taxable entities like NIPA. 
These tax credits add new financial resources to NYPA's ability to expand the state's renewable generation fleet. Thank you for the opportunity to provide testimony here today. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Before we start questions, I just want to announce that we have been joined by Senator Kristen Gonzalez, by Senator Jessica Ramos, by Senator Gunardis, and by Senator Salazar. And the any Republican senators new? Same or here. Same or here, fine. Do you have any new assembly members to announce before I roll it out? I, I think <coughs> Anyone want to wave that they got sure. here and get announced? <laughs> Some were here for earlier, oh, but okay. uh, Assemblyman uh, Mandami and Assemblywoman Shrestha, and I think everybody else was here at the beginning. Okay. So, to the Senate. Thank you. So we're going to start with the chair of NCON, Senator Pete Harkum. Good afternoon, everyone. Been having issues. All right, we'll go ahead with that. That's okay. Thank you all for your testimony. Really appreciate it. I want to thank you and congratulate your teams on the incredible work. All right. Can we borrow a mic here? That works. That works. I'll cozy up to Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Can we go back to 10 minutes on the clock? <laughs> Time is valuable. Thank you. First, uh, I, I want to thank you all for your testimony. Also, thanks to you and your teams for incredible work on the scoping plan. It was just amazing work. Um, there are going to be a lot of questions about climate, about energy today. But given my portfolio, I think I'm going to focus on some other things, maybe come back to it if it's time. So nothing personal, but I, I think we'll go directly to, to Commissioner Sagos on, on a bunch of issues. We'll kind of do this like a lightning round, and we'll, we'll jump around if that's okay. Uh, first on the Environmental Protection Fund. Some folks think we're kind of backsliding into an old bad habit of charging staff to the Environmental Protection Fund. How many um, FTEs are we, we proposing to charge uh, to the uh, Environmental Protection Fund, and, and what is the cost? Uh, Senator, uh, thanks for the question. It's not a large number. Uh, I can get you the exact number offline. Um, if my staff can dig it up, I'm happy to share it with you during the hearing. Um, but as you know, the this, this staff, of course, would be working on EPF purposes. All righty. Um, and then some of the, some of the um, lines um, have been increased, some have been decreased. Can you get us information on that? For instance, um, uh, solid waste increases, um, mm -hmm. but environmental justice decreases. You know, I'm sure those are programmatic things, but they're not really spelled out in the budget. If you can get us details on that, that'd be appreciated. Sure, C certainly happy to. And obviously there's so many lines in the EPF that we make adjustments to every year in coordination with you during negotiations. So it's, it is a bit of an accordion, but we try to put the monies where, uh, where the resources are most needed, um, taking into account outside resources. For example, last year we didn't have the Bond Act, right? Now we do. Uh, we have a, four, a $90 million New York Works as well, which is helping to uh, allow us to make adjustments in where we direct those dollars. So you mentioned solid waste, for example. We have a huge backlog in, in solid waste projects that we need to fund around the state through grants, largely. Uh, environmental justice. 
we anticipate directing an enormous amount of money into the environmental justice consistent with the CLCPA's 35 minimum 40% goal mandate. So that will receive, the, the environmental justice projects will receive an enormous amount of funding through other funding sources outside the EPF. All right, um, perfect. So it is that accordion. Yeah, no, that, that gives us a sense. We've got seven minutes more and 20 minutes for the questions. Okay. Um, on, on the Bond Act, um, obviously your, your team is promulgating the rules. When can the public expect um, those rules out for comment? We're getting a lot of questions about that. To, to give you the, the, the heart of the answer, um, we'll likely be putting criteria out for public comment in April, May. Um, so Bond Act passed. Right, approved by the voters, governor convened all of us. We've been working all the state agencies to establish some of that criteria, uh, which we expect to, to launch in the spring and then get it out public comment uh, over the summer. All right, thank you. Those of us in suburban and rural districts are hearing a lot about the earthen dam replacements that they're under consent order to re uh, rebuild or replace. Um, is there gonna be money in the Bond Act for municipalities to access for this purpose? Uh, likely so. Um, we would need to work through procurement rules, right? Um, who's, who would be receiving the funds for the earth and dam replacement? Um, we, we would obviously have to abide by those, those types of rules. But our intent is to, with dams, certainly, whether it's New York Works or Bond Act, is to shore up a lot of these dams around the state that we manage. And a number of them, as you probably know, are, are quite old and need that investment. Agreed, and, yeah. and it's, uh, many of them are under consent order yes. from us, so if, you know, it's an expense they don't have. But we'll, we'll continue that conversation, thank you. Um, the $60 million program uh, for communities to identify and remediate emerging contaminants. Um, the language in it is very vague mm -hmm. and gives DEC really the option to take chemicals off that list. Can you give us a little more detail about that? Well, I think we wanted to build some flexibility into that language so that we have the ability to either add or remove chemicals as needed. Uh, the intent of the program is to get $60 million a year uh, to the localities that have been bearing the burden of problems they largely didn't know that they were creating, whether it's fire training centers or landfills that are now sources of PFAS or 1,4-dioxane. So at $60 million a year out of a variety of, out of, a variety of funds, um, you know, our intent is to is to fix problems. You know, not to not to remove our ability to go after things that we might we might see over time. All right. Is this um, primarily for public water sources, municipal water sources, or will there be an ability to address private wells as well? well I, I believe we, we would want it as the, the authority to be as broad as possible, so that we weren't limiting it just to drinking water sources. If we saw uh, plumes that might be con uh, contributing to environmental degradation we'd want to help uh, municipalities address those problems as well. Um, but as you know, issues at private wells are often uh, adjacent to public wells. You find a plume that may stretch from a, 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 a pollution source. It may, it may impact a number of different private and, private and public uh, sources. All right, let's hop over to waste now. Okay. Um, uh, I'm pleased to see a, a good waste proposal. There are also two very strong waste proposals in the legislature. The difference is the two in the legislature both deal with toxins in packaging and the administration's does not. Um, what is the reason for that and, and what is the administration's position on dealing with toxins in packaging? Well, we don't support toxins in packaging. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's a good start. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in right, agreement. Right up, right up front, I want to make sure that's clear. Um, I mean, our, our objective is to start as aggressively as possible with packaging writ large, so not to, not to carve out any particular type of chemical used in packaging, but to approach the, the, the problem of paper and plastic packaging, period. Um, so we've written it somewhat broadly in that sense, um, like we did with the chemicals, uh, we, we discussed with chemicals in the, uh, the carpet EPR, we don't support the chemical recycling of carpets, we don't support the chemical recycling of, of uh, paper and, 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 pa and plastic packaging waste, so we're trying to approach it in a, in a uniform way. All right, let me slip in a local question while, while we're here. Um, at the last Indian Point Decommissioning mm -hmm. Oversight Board meeting, it was a position of both DEC and the PSC that New York has no authority to regulate radiological discharges into the Hudson River. Is that still the, the state's, the, the administration's position? And um, from, from your seat, is there anything we can do legislatively to uh, empower New York State to have that, that authority? Good question. The federal law is fairly clear that radiological uh, discharges are the purview of the federal government, EPA, Department of Energy, uh, NRC, uh, whereas the state will handle everything else through its discharge permitting. So our, our Speedy's permit for the plant um, handles everything but for tritium discharges. Um, we certainly can, can do more in a coordinated fashion with the federal government. I mean, I've, I've reached out directly to the EPA regional administrator about this very issue uh, to, to, to gauge their position on this. How may they come down? Uh, on the proposal of discharge or store um, uh, that, that wastewater. Um, but I think we'd be doing it together. And I'm not sure what the legislature could do to override federal law on this. I, I know Massachusetts does have um, that, that in statute. So we'll, we'll explore it's, that more. It's worth with, looking into. With yep. counsel. Exactly. Yep. All right. Um, let's go to Environmental Facilities Fund, uh, mm -hmm. Environmental Facilities Corporation of the budget. Um, I, I really like hearing about the community assistance teams. That sounds very much like the ombudsman program that we discussed a year ago. Could you tell us how that would work? Sure. Um, well, we know that local government often isn't uh, skilled or, or resourced enough to, to pursue some of these grants or loans. Uh, we've been talking about that for several years. We've exchanged this in, in multiple meetings, and um, uh, EFC intends to roll this out uh, shortly so that this year we have teams that can go around the state and actually help municipalities get through these sometimes onerous processes, um, take advantage of the funds that the, the legislature has made available. And it's, it's been an extraordinary run. Uh, but we want, to, we want to begin getting to those munis that are uh, a little bit less resourced uh, to, to achieve these dollars. Great. I'm excited to hear that. Um, forest rangers, we're going to hear from your colleagues later on today. I'm sure they will tell us that they are overworked and understaffed. Um, do you have plans for a new class? Do you think we're at a sufficient number? Would you like to see more? Where, what's the administration's position? Well, they, they, they are extraordinarily worked. I mean, they're very busy. They're all over the place. You know, I call them the, the state's Swiss Army knife because they really do everything along with our ECOs. Um, so we did have the, the, the most recent academy. It was the largest academy ever for the forest rangers. And uh, we're now in the early stages of preparing for the next one. We had a record turnout for the, for the exam that we just held. So I, I expect to begin replenishing the ranks of both the Forest Rangers and the Environmental Conservation Police uh, over the coming year. Thanks. Last 17 seconds. Um, back to Environmental Protection Fund. We've heard from land preservation groups. They've been having trouble getting 
the money that they've been promised, they laid out money, they're having financial hardship. What is the cause of that bottleneck and, and can we get that opened up? I'd have to look into the cause of the bottleneck. Seeing time, I'd be happy to get that to you all offline. All right, thanks. Okay. Pretty good for 10 minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Thank Assembly. You. We go to uh, Chair of NCON, Assemblywoman Glick. 10 minutes. My counterpart um, set a standard. I'm going to have to do like a Federal Express kind of lightning, lightning round. Um, on the EPF, uh, if you look at what has been appropriated over the years and what has been dispersed, there are some uh, gaps there. I'm just wondering if we're expanding the fund, uh, will we be able to get the money out the door? That's, you know, the case in, you know, many areas. But what do you think is the likelihood that we will catch up to what hasn't been dispersed and what we will, in fact, be able to get out the door? Thank you for asking that. Um, we have recognized the, the need to get the money out the door more quickly. Um, and I, I will tell you that's exactly why the governor is coming to us with more resources. You know, we have, are getting, you know, an additional uh, 321 staff uh, this year. It's really unprecedented uh, to get those, those increases. Um, that recognizes that we have a backlog of uh, core mission, including EPF disbursements, and also taking on new responsibilities as, as we have over the last few years, most notably Bond Act and uh, Seal CPA. So my hope is that, I think I said 321, 231. Um, my hope is that we can get those dollars out more quickly because we are going to spread that increase across the, some of the divisions that have been uh, um, working with less. In that vein, um, there have been under the uh, water infrastructure, uh, CWIA, I mm. think, um, there have been, there are several uh, program lines in that. and. We, I don't think, have a handle on comprehensive accounting of how the funding has been used uh, and whether or not um, individual uh, applicants feel that the, the money gets to them. So is that the same issue? I believe we're getting at that issue. Um, you know, we started this in 2017, and then during COVID, we had a, a bit of a, a lull in hiring freeze and spending was more challenging. But this year we had a record year of getting money out the door, almost over a billion dollars of, of grants made. Um, so I, I would say that we are beginning to, to address the issues that, that you flagged. Um, and, and I think the proof is in some of the releases that we did this year and the fact that it got out quickly enough to communities. Is the, is the demand still there? Yes, absolutely. And we expect this year to be another, another big year for, uh, for water funding. Um, not to be too repetitive, uh, we got some new federal dollars, mm. which we love, uh, for lead service line replacement and the removal of certain contaminants like PFAS. And applications went out uh, or uh, last summer, uh, and I don't know that there have been any awards yet. Do you have a timeline on that? I can't speak as much to the timeline on lead service line grants. That's handled by Department of Health. It's a bit of a weird uh, split between DOH and DEC, unlike EPA, which has it all under one roof. Okay, we'll yeah. follow up with them. Okay. Um, there, are there any regulations planned or, or in place to deal with testing for PFAS uh, that's getting discharged by industry? Um, mm. So obviously we have concerns, it's, you know, these forever 
chemicals are everywhere. They're not only forever, they're ubiquitous. So um, are there plans for testing for specific discharges from industry because we, of course, want polluters to pay for uh, cleanup? We, there are plans. We have some technical guidance out there already that requires uh, uh, certain testing of, of PFAS from dischargers. There are water, drinking water quality standards that we've worked on with the Department of Health. Um, and we do ambient water quality testing as well uh, to gauge the presence of PFAS in places where people are drinking or swimming. Uh, we are also, of course, doing testing of fish. That came up this morning, I think, in, in some of the Q&A. Um, we've been doing that for several years, actually since 2016, uh, been doing testing of fish. And that's more, more broadly uh, done now at a, a nationwide level. Uh, so the answer is yes, we are starting to do it, and we envision um, certainly making great, uh, wider controls over the releases of PFAS and helping to marry that up with some of the water funding that we have, which, you know, we don't want to strain uh, uh, the already cash-strapped um, public treatment works, for example, if we can get them some additional resources for, to prevent those kinds of discharges. That's certainly within the state's, uh, state's uh, long-term horizon. Uh, a little bit of a shift. Um, for, you know, COVID made everybody more aware of the outdoors, and there's uh, a tremendous amount in Catskills and the Adirondacks for uh, use of the recreational activities. Uh, not so much skiing this winter, uh, but um, we're wondering uh, why there was, uh, since the overuse is likely to continue, why there was a uh, elimination of specific overuse dollars in this budget. You're right. Uh, we are seeing record numbers, uh, whether it was Eric's Parks or our uh, Catskills and Adirondacks. And it's a good thing, um, but we've recognized that we, the, the use needs to be done in a sustainable way. Uh, we have the Catskills and, and High Peaks advisory groups that have prepared reports for us to, uh, to begin controlling some of that, to begin channeling our resources into both parks to, to reduce the impacts. Um, the EPF, again, was $300 million last year. Now it's $400 million, and we expect to, to uh, increase our spending in, in both of those places. And I think, like, every year there's often a, an exchange of visions about whether or not we need to have a line without sub uh, carve-outs or if we need to have those carve-outs. But our commitment to the Catskills or the Adirondacks has only increased dollar by dollar every single year since, since I've been in this, in this office. And you envision that to also be money that will come out of the uh, Bond Act for that, those purposes? Absolutely. Uh, the Bond Act is, is, has many broad categories. Again, we're going to be putting the criteria together on that. But even some of the, of the categories that don't require criteria, um, there is already some, some thinking, some early thinking about places where we could direct some of those dollars to, to help uh, address some of the trail and, and uh, trailhead issues that we've seen over the years. Uh, with waste reduction, uh, the timelines seem um, to be fairly uh, long, uh, long time horizon. Um, do you think there's a way of uh, moving those up? Well, we're always looking at, at the best way to effectuate the rollout of a big program like this. I mean, we are proposing a fairly significant change to the way in which we would manage uh, waste here in New York State. So. Uh, what we've proposed is, is, is what we believe to be ambitious, but also achievable uh, in a way that wouldn't impact prices for, uh, uh, for New Yorkers. We've seen four other states do this, Maine and some Western Coast states. Um, they've done it in a way that didn't impact prices. We certainly want to do that also. 
um, while, it, while helping us achieve all of the things that we've been dealing with over the years. Too many trucks in the road because the packages are too big, uh, too much waste in landfills, not enough money to handle all the recycling, the market crashes. And, and I think taking into all that account, um, you know, creating a, a bit of a flight path to success was the reason behind our, our, uh, the dates that we put in, in motion, but we're going to be talking with you, I know, throughout the course of the next uh, two months as we refine that proposal. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, say we need more environmental conservation officers in New York City, and you have a plan? We do, actually. Um, we're starting that already. We, this year we, we made a change to the pay structure so that our ECOs that live downstate can get a pay increase because of the cost of living downstate, so it's <coughs> sort of mid-Hudson South. Um, that's part of it. Um, we also are intending to, to launch the next uh, academy within the next 12 to 18 months, which is going to increase the, the size of that, uh, of that force. Um, and as, as is always the case, they start downstate. Uh, we'd like them, if they want to, to be able to afford to live downstate, and that's really behind the, the, the reason behind the GeoPay that we did. Um, I see my time is, is eroding. Let me just do a quick NYSERDA question or two. Um, how can we make it easier for consumers to determine what renewable systems are best for them? How, you know, if we want people to do the right thing, we want to make it easy. What plans do you have for that? Well, we certainly do need to increase awareness of options that are available to New Yorkers. We completely agree, and in fact, awareness is a major aspect of the climate plan's implementation in the first instance. But one um, new initiative that we are actually just launching um, and just awarded last year is our clean energy hubs, um, which are actually going to be 12 locations around the state embedded within communities, intended really to be on the ground and resources available to navigate um, what is admittedly a, uh, a complex ecosystem of not only resources, but uh, technologies that can be brought to bear. So in addition to broader activities that we have underway, the hubs, I think, are a great way to, to be in the communities directly. I yield back my eight seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good example. Um, Chair Michelle Hinchy. She's the chair of agriculture, but apparently that has something to do with the environment, so she has other interests. <laughs> wow, this was a gift that I didn't see coming, so thank you. Um, first and foremost, thank you all for being here and uh, for the work that you do in these incredibly important subject areas. Uh, my first question, and I guess I'll say yes, I think we all are in agreement uh, now, and, and many have been, but especially now, that agriculture and the environment go hand in hand. They are not enemies, they are not antithetical to each other. We have to be working in partnership to make sure that we are protecting our environment and that we have a planet to live on in the future, but also so that we have a robust and thriving food supply and also farms that can help sequester our carbon, which we know is a core component of the CLCPA and the scoping plan. So thank you all for your work in this partnership. Uh, my first question is for President Harris. Is it true, would you say it's true, that the state and NYSERDA and all relevant agencies are not incentivizing solar development on farmland? I would say, um, thank you for the question, I, I appreciate it. I, I would say, and, and as someone who has worked in this industry for, for decades at this point, 
This has been an evolution, an evolution of both recognition of the impacts, potential impacts of solar on farmland, but specifically the ways that we can avoid, minimize, and mitigate those impacts. Um, you heard uh, Commissioner Ball note of the fact that one of my very first stops was at his farm where we spoke in depth about solar issues and siting issues and in fact have put into place a number of activities that are progressing over time to not only, uh, I would say, build the frameworks that will be necessary to avoid in the first instance, and that includes new and expanded provisions within our solicitations that are taking, taking shape, but also the ways in which building on the Climate Action Council's work, we can better be aware of issues of farmland protection and agricultural issues in general. So we are active participants in every working group uh, that the commissioner has formed and, and really have seen the developers respond because what we have learned is that not only does our buying power, but our commitment to responsible development yield results. It takes some amount of time and I would say it remains an area of top focus. Thank you. Uh, you know, I think the commissioner who was here just before you said, you know, for every one acre of farmland that is being built on, we're saving one. I would argue that is woefully too few uh, because that still means we're having the amount of farmland that we have. And uh, in the Build Ready program, that is an incentive program for solar development. Uh, currently, farmland is included in that program. If we're not working to incentivize farmland for development, why is that pro why is farmland still in that program? And I will say uh, we have a bill that we passed in this legislature uh, nearly, I think, unanimously, uh, and it was vetoed. And it's uh, a little bit confusing to me if we're not incentivizing farmland, why are we keeping farmland in an incentivization program? So can you speak to, speak to that? Certainly. So the Build Ready program is really focused on siting and underutilized land. Every project that we are advancing thus far is consistent with that framework. We don't have projects that are advancing in, in, um, in protected farmlands as a, in the first instance. And, and really, it remains a top priority of ours to work on brownfields, industrial sites, and other underutilized land. For, for the sake of time, I would argue that part of that is just not happening. I mean, I've got communities that are losing over 10% of their land with very few cited projects on them. Uh, we are losing farmland at a clip. And I met with a dairy farmer yesterday who has been approached not once, not twice, but eight times by a solar developer to buy his land. And now because of the challenges, both federally, but also here in the state, he's actually giving in and selling it. And he threw them off his land the first few times. So I think we have a much bigger role to play in the state, your agency included, to make sure that the words that we're saying about protecting farmland is actually what's happening in the execution. Um, I'm going to move over to Commissioner Sagos. Um, I appreciate the uh, comments on the technical assistance for our small communities. Uh, I represent 56 communities that are uh, very small, often rural, and they just cannot access the grants. They cannot access the money that we have allocated for them. And uh, while I am excited to hear about more technical assistance, that will be helpful specifically as it pertains to water infrastructure. Um, you know, many of these communities need not a one-time grant, but they need dedicated funding because their infrastructure is so old and in desperate need of repair and maintenance. 
Would you say that a dedicated funding stream to our municipalities to help make sure that we can guarantee water infrastructure, clean water infrastructure and sewer infrastructure would be helpful? Um, yes, I, I would, and I, but I would point you to the fact that we did that with you. We did the Clean Water Infrastructure Act back in 2017, and it's been really an annual uh, uh, event when we get to the governor's uh, this year announcing another $500 million towards that, so now $5 billion fund. Um, which, again, never existed. And um, I think the, the issue really prior to 2017 is so many of these systems decayed because there was no money available. And the great grant program that we had was uh, inaccessible because of the inability to pay off the debt service of those, those types of loans. Now we really have something. Now we have a grant program that matches up very well with the loan program where we're spending at a record clip. Um, so I would say that you know, as, as, as we try to get these dollars out the door as quickly as possible, uh, to the Assemblywoman's question earlier, um, that if communities that you know of are having issues getting through that program, please let us know because you've given us the dollars, now we need to get them through the system. I'll tell you, the loan program we hear rave reviews about, I think that's important, mm -hmm. um, but the grants are, it's still not working and I would encourage you before you leave today, whatever hour that might be, uh, to talk to our folks who are in the breezeway between the Capitol and the LOB. Uh, what they believe is needed, and I do too, is a CHIPS-like funding program to our municipalities to actually get them reliable money mm -hmm. to fix our water infrastructure. And there's a great display out there, I encourage everyone to, to go talk to them and see it. I did see it actually. They yelled at me to uh, great. Take go, it back. go visit them because yeah. I think they would say some of the grant structure is not actually working to our yeah. small communities, and there's a lot we still have to do there. Um, switching gears to uh, the EPF and uh, to agroforestry. This is something, as we know, we've uh, we've cited far, uh, farmers are now a critical component of sequestering carbon, and on much of our farmland, we have forests. And one thing we don't talk that much about is selective cutting and forest maintenance so that we can actually sequester more carbon uh, and have this land be working land uh, for carbon sequestration. Um, do you think putting something like that in the EPF would be beneficial to both supporting our farmers for the long run dedicated funding and also for our climate goals? You know, we approached this issue a few years ago um, through the tax um, uh, I'm forgetting the, the actual uh, number, but it was a tax credit program yep. uh, designed to, to help uh, the owners of these small forests, right, it's, which is major the majority of the forestry in the state is owned by small private owners, uh, to, to uh, provide the types of incentives to, to get those, um, uh, uh, the rates of cutting into a sustainable manner and also preserve, preserve that land from being uh, taken up. I think we, we, are, we are willing to, to talk about any, any uh, funding streams or any policies that uh, ultimately would, would help to keep those forests as forests, working forests, uh, because they serve so many purposes for our logging industry, for, um, uh, for sequestration purposes, and for the preservation of the outdoors. So I think we're, we're fairly well aligned on that point and willing to talk about uh, how best to effectuate it. Thank you. Yeah, the, the tax credit is, is great, or the, the tax credit is great, but I don't think it's, it's enough, and I know they have some changes to it, additional right. that have come out of the scoping plan, right. actually, so things that we're reviewing, but a, a dedicated fund to actually pay our farmers for ecosystem management mm -hmm. for that work, I think, is an important component uh, of what we're all doing here uh, for the future. I will just also note that Clean Water Infrastructure Act also has as, as eligible funds uh, to go to 
farms for farmland preservation for those buff for those important buffer areas source water protection thank you protecting yep. that's a good point because our farms are protecting yep. a lot of our uh, water supplies and making sure we don't need filtration systems specifically for many of my colleagues in the city your water comes from our community and our farmlands are keeping it clean um, with my 50 seconds left want to quickly shift to the 60 million dollars that my colleague chair Harka mentioned um, for landfills is that we have a small community that has a toxic landfill that is on the list uh, for closure. However, they're so small, they can't afford the funds up front to pay for that, even though they're going to get reimbursed in 10 years. Uh, is this a fund that they'd be able to access to help push that forward now? Possibly. Um, if the landfill itself was creating a condition um, that would jeopardize drinking water supplies or other really important environmental uh, sensitive resources. So yeah, I think the question, the answer is probably, probably yes. There's 1,900 of these landfills that are inactive that are waiting for, for full closure. Um, and we've been doing an enormous amount of testing around the state to find out which ones are uh, posing that risk. So perhaps we should try to compare the Venn diagram of what you're seeing and, and uh, ultimately what the uh, uh, the threats are and how we can best fund them. That'd be great. We have a couple. I'd love Thank to talk you. to you about that. Great. We'll talk. Thank you. Thank yep. you, Assembly. Assemblywoman Barrett, Chair of our Energy Committee. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chairs, and thank you all for being here and for all your great leadership work. I'm going to start with a, a, what I hope was a brief question with the Commissioner um, that's related to what my colleague talked about because we represent the same communities. Um, and it's really the uh, a different angle. It's the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, mm -hmm. which we have found in an overwhelming num number of my rural communities, they are not eligible for because they don't have anything to improve. They don't have any infrastructure. And we need a funding stream that really will address, and these are multiple communities when they did, you know, the, the um, went through the process, they basically didn't make the cut to be eligible while lots of big cities and other parts of the state did. Um, and so it seems to me that's probably a flaw in the system, but if you have some other suggestion or some input, I'd love to hear it before I go on to other questions. So you've raised the loan program, right, um, which as we saw for many years, uh, was we had enormous amount of money that was un, underutilized, untapped, um, and that's why we created the Clean Water Infrastructure Act. Um, so there's several pots of money through that. We also have one that, that DEC controls called the uh, Water Quality Improvement Program. Uh, which is helping to dedicate resources to problems um, in small communities. Uh, so I would say that uh, if, if communities are, are experiencing issues trying to address the uh, tap into those funds, that they should reach out to us uh, or, and or wait for the EFC announcement about its, uh, about its community task force that they're going to be doing around the state. Because what, what we're trying to do is marry up the large amount of resources that we have with the communities that most need them. And we've just seen that delta being so big, and that's why the governor's put a priority on doing that this year. Okay, we will follow up with you and have our communities, because it's you know Please. a dozen or more just in my district. Yep, happy town, to do so. that. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Um, all right, shifting gears to the CLCPA, and again, thank you for your leadership, both of you, on this. Um, you know, affordability is such an important piece of this. We you know we've talked about this. I'm I'm wondering whether. Um, and I'm going to let either of you decide who wants to answer this, but have we created additional challenges for ourselves by not counting biofuels and bridge fuels in the process of helping us get to these very ambitious, everybody calls them ambitious and, you know, and, and um, you know, and 
nation-leading goals, while other states are moving along uh, without these being hamstrung and uh, getting other things done? Well, certainly, um, and thank you for the question. Uh, this has been a multi-year process as described, and, and certainly through that process, we have all, the, not only the members of the council, but also the public at large have begun to un better understand and articulate really what it takes to achieve these outcomes. That was our job, uh, to not decide the endpoints, but to decide uh, how to achieve them, um, practically speaking. And I, and I would say certainly one of the governor's primary objectives in laying out our cap and invest program and a core principle within it is not only the principle of affordability, but the principle of uh, linkage, i.e. linking to other um, jurisdictions and beyond, really, through the effectuation of this program. And we in New York are um, certainly operating in a different, uh, to your question, accounting framework than, than many uh, jurisdictions, actually any jurisdiction, uh, Western states, uh, Eastern states, and globally. Um, certainly a different accounting framework than, than they utilize in their programs. So over the coming um, months, through this robust regulatory process, we will be advancing this cap and invest program. Um, in ways that fulfill the governor's request, which is to say, let's look at these differences and let's look at how um, that impacts the effectuation of this cap and invest program. It's um, certainly the case that the climate law established very specific rules with respect to renewable energy eligibility um, by removing these biofuels as um, eligible renewable resources. We do see applications of renewable natural gas, as an example, in hard to electrify applications industrial applications, perhaps uh, medium and heavy duty transport and other sectors for sure, um, but with respect to power generation, um, these projects, because of the climate laws rules, are not eligible for renewable energy programs. And then sometimes people are then selling their credits to other states, California, the uh, New England states. Is, is that a good development? Well, it is certainly true that um, these are markets. Uh, these are markets in which uh, the private sector, as we've discussed throughout the day, will respond to the market forces that are present. And in this instance, we do see um, a, a shift, really. Um, NYSERDA certainly supported for decades, actually, digester programs for power generation, um, electricity uh, production over, over many programs. Now we do see a shifting of those um, farms in particular to deliver renewable natural gas via credit to other markets um, because of those differences. Thank you. So we have heard from a lot of our colleagues at rural as well as urban, suburban, um, their concerns. I mean, I, we all understand that the, the rumor mill about gas stoves is you know, largely unfounded. Yes, we're talking about new construction. We're talking um, specifically um, but, but I think there's a lot of concern by all of our constituents about how they are going to be able to meet these goals in their own lives. And, you know, we, these are the people we represent. Um, they, people who live through the, the big storms in Buffalo, turn to their gas fireplaces, to their, um, their gas stoves. Uh, generators, I mean, most of us have, are run on propane. Um, People who live in old buildings know that basically they can't plug in their hair dryer and their coffee maker at the same time. Um, and that's, you know, we want to electrify everything. So what, what are we doing here? How are we getting to the goals? What are we telling people and what's the plan for 
being able to bring everyone along with us, because if we don't bring everyone along with us, we're not going to reach our goals. Thank you for that question. Uh, there's a lot that I, I, I could lay out as to um, answers, but I think the, the fundamental framework um, that we as a council had, had deliberated on for this period of years is one of recognizing, number one, we have to tackle buildings. Um, they are the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in our state. We have a very diverse and complex building stock, seven million households, and I bet every one of you has a different story around uh, what the homes look like in your um, communities that you represent. So ultimately, what we know we need to do is not only invest in our housing stock, but also to create futures for all New Yorkers that are more sustainable, more comfortable, more durable with respect to resiliency and, and beyond. So what you see today, I would say, is a rational, uh, rational and safe and well thought out um, approach to begin the process of addressing our buildings. Um, first, by starting with the buildings that are not yet constructed. Um, we need to start there because we know they can be built in many cases at the same um, price or even very nominally um, above the price of a new home that is using fossil fuels. But we also need to really catch these buildings when there are investments being made in the replacement. So that's the fossil fuel heating equipment proposal, which is looking at when the equipment has reached the end of its useful life, we will have programs and investments ready to help make that transition for New Yorkers. And at the end of the day, we are going to be relying much more significantly on our grid. We know this. I'm sure we'll be talking about this throughout this afternoon because it is the primary resource we'll be using is electricity. But that's not to say that through these processes and through the regulatory process, specifically, we will be looking at exemptions. We recognize that it is not always possible to electrify or create zero emission futures for every circumstance, and that's really part of the framework that we've proposed is um, appropriate exemptions that will be necessary as well. Thank you. Um, what about energy storage? What are we? Um, what are the primary impediments you see to getting the storage uh, infrastructure in place? Well, energy storage remains a critical aspect of creating that grid of the future, certainly from the perspective of the resilience and reliability that we know it will need to have. Um, as I described in my testimony, we are in the process, um, we've proposed an expansion to our energy storage goal to the Public Service Commission, up to six gigawatts. That's a, a, good, a good step. That's about 20% of the peak need in, those, in the target year of that program. In reality, we need to scale up storage, not only with respect to short duration storage, but longer duration storage um, so that we can sustain periods of time where the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine or during periods of, of power outages, which despite um, the rigorous design processes that we employ will, will happen from time to time. Um, so, so really when we think about storage, it's scale up, it's expansion of duration, and it's ultimately good sighting for safety and reliability purposes. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Senator Borello. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you all for being here. Uh, my, uh, 
My time is a little short, so I'd like to start with uh, Commissioner Sagos. First of all, thank you very much for your, your great partnership, uh, you know, with uh, Richard Ball on uh, the project, the Great Lakes Cheese Project. You guys really worked together uh, to make sure that that happened, so I want to thank you for that. Um, I have a question. Uh, you know, we, I represent a lot of uh, Native territories. We have a lot of Native territories throughout New York State. In 2021, the New York State Legislature unanimously passed uh, protections uh, for hunting and fishing rights uh, of, uh, of Native Americans in New York State. Uh, the governor subsequently vetoed that bill, and in her veto message, she said that she would work with DEC to ensure that those rights are protected. So what is being done to ensure those rights are being protected? Thank you for asking that. Well, um, as you know, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, we, we initiated the agency's first ever Office of Indian Nation Affairs, which is helping to guide uh, some of the, the thinking that we're doing on this, uh, which had traditionally been done uh, after the fact, right? After someone had gone and perhaps run afoul of the law. Um, so we're trying to get more proactive on it. We've engaged all of the nations, all the, na all the nations here in New York State. Um, all of them have different approaches to hunting and fishing, but the, the, the point that we're making about it is we need to do a better uh, job of respecting uh, the uh, indigenous uh, approach to conservation uh, while, while working with them to help, to help them understand um, conservation necessity on our end, where there might be certain species that need to be protected for certain reasons. Uh, it's all uh, coming together largely now uh, in a series of conversations that we've been having with some of the leaders uh, within the Confederacy. Um, and uh, I would expect that this year we'll be making a more, uh, more broad statement about um, how uh, the, the long-term relationship between the state of New York and the various nations that are, uh, will, be, it will be done in a, in a compatible way when it comes to managing both fish and wildlife. So it's been productive. Well, I'm glad to hear that because obviously, you know, this is essentially a violation of a, a federal treaty uh, to, uh, you know, to infringe on their rights. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear there's, uh, there's cooperation going on and hopefully it's, it's sooner than later. Um, uh, um, you know, you, you speak about protecting endangered species and so forth, which brings me to a concern that I have. Um, you know, the Office of Renewable Energy Siting, ORES, seems to be able to, at will, trample on DEC regulations when they start, are they are trying to, in the effort to speed up uh, these things. I'll give you an example, you know, when, uh, you know, DEC is very careful about, uh, in, about habitats, natural habitats, and yet uh, when they put up uh, the, uh, the Arkwright Wind Project, uh, or, or excuse me, the Cassidy Wind Project, uh, there was concern about bat, ha you know, about bat habitats, and they said, well, we sent a bat expert in there, he didn't see any bats in the trees, so we cut the trees down. How is ORES, how are you balancing ORES's push to, uh, you know, to expedite these renewable energy settings with the need to protect uh, our environment? Well, I would say, you know, since, since the legislature created the ORES several years ago, we've been um, improving our relationship with ORES. I mean, we, we have shared on a regular basis our expert staff to work with them on specific, uh, specific issues. They have, of course, their own uh, experts as well. Uh, that are helping to process permits and process applications. Um, it's a it's a symbiotic relationship that we have between the two between the two agencies, and for that matter, NYSERDA and um, and DPS as well. As we take into account all the various impacts to the built and natural environment, with the need to build out our renewables as well. In particular, as you as you mentioned, offshore uh, onshore wind. Yeah. Um, so for us, um, you know, we, we have been able to, to, to manage these. It's a, it's a relatively small number of applications that have come through uh, ORES thus far. So it, it hasn't uh, created a burden on our staff to keep up with some of the the challenges posed by the applications. 
but in the end, they have the right to really override what you what you do, and that's really concerning for, for me because there's this foolish notion that we can that we have to destroy the environment in order to save the planet, which I don't subscribe to. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing as they clear-cut forests that are naturally sequestering carbon, as they, you know, uh, really slaughter endangered species. Uh, this is really a problem, and uh, you've got. Uh, former uh, environmental organizations that used to be concerned about protecting that are now have sold out to these energy companies. So I hope that uh, DC can push back. Um, you know, and just in general, uh, and my time is really short here, just to, uh, my concern for, for both uh, NYSERDA and the New York Power Authority is the importing of power. New York State is importing more power than it ever has from dirty old-fashioned coal plants. How is that meeting your energy goals? Well, we certainly do track all of our imports um, and report on this regularly. I would say um, our imports from Pennsylvania, the PJM system, have actually been relatively flat, but I'd be glad to send you that data. Please. I apologize for not giving you enough time. Sorry. <laughs> no more time. Maybe you can follow up to all of us afterwards. Thank you. Assembly. Yes, we go to our rank on NCON, Assemblyman Simpson. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you all for being here. And, uh, and enlightening us today and I'm going to speak fast because I got a lot of questions and very little time so the stewardship funding the eight million dollars that was in the EPF last year is not in there this year but amongst that funding there were a lot of partners that really bring this program to where it is in the Adirondacks and the Catskills so without this funding could you let me know could you tell us how you're going to accomplish the same uh, program without that $8 million in funding? Uh, it's a good good question. So um, I expect to have an increased level of, of support for the Adirondacks in, in, in our stewardship obligations. I mean, the EPF is, again, still at $400 million. We, right. we still intend to spend the money at the same clip with, for the same purposes as we, did, as we did last year. But, of course, this year we have the Bond Act, right, and the criteria that we're going to be explaining on that in the coming months. And I think that will give us some parallel tools to hit at the, some of the same uh, purposes that we had articulated through the, the EPF last year. So a lot of the Bond Act money then is going to supplant other funding that was in the budget prior? I think that we, we need to look at, at, at opportunities to uh, put, put certain projects on the Bond Act and perhaps there's certain things that won't be eligible for the Bond Act that we need right. to keep within the EPF or within New York work. So it's, it's uh, assessing all of our tools and finding out how best to achieve the outcomes uh, uh, by virtue of the tools that you've given us. Okay. I'm going to switch gears quickly to um, EFC funding. Yes. A lot of the communities in my district that I've spoken with that have had issues qualifying, uh, one of the big issues is the fact that most of my communities, my district have a large population of second homeowners mm -hmm. where their assessed values, you know, their, the measurement of wealth in a community is really decided by, um, it could be upwards to two-thirds of the population that is seasonal, lives on a lake, doesn't have um, water infrastructure, but the district that has to pay for the water infrastructure are those residents that are in the hamlets and the smaller, lesser valued properties. So I think um, from speaking with most of my representatives in my counties, they think there's a flaw in that formula, that we really need to look at it um, in a different way. You know, we all know, um, you know, the lakefront value in the last few years has more than doubled. Mm. And, and it's affecting 
um, the ratios or these formulas that we use to establish wealth. It's a, it's a great point, uh, Assemblyman. I, I'd, I'd be happy to think with my team offline and engage with you directly on that, um, okay. about how we can address that, that, that issue. But uh, it's a good point. Yeah, I just want to say that our hamlets are deteriorating while those lakefront properties are appreciated. Mm -hmm. And we need that required infrastructure for economic development, affordable housing. If we had the proper infrastructure there, we could help with this situation. Well, I would say the EFC community assistance teams can be perhaps helpful in this regard, right? When we're trying mm -hmm. to push not loans to water districts that then fall on the ratepayers dis disproportionately because there's certain seasonals and not, uh, that we can uh, encourage some of these smaller towns to get into the grant programs, right? Which just takes that obligation right off the top and reduces the burden on, on all ratepayers. Okay. So I'm going to rush through this. I'm going to okay. lump it in. How was the, um, how successful or unsuccessful was the youth hunting program pilot? Good question. It was very successful. Um, we saw a 29% increase in, in junior uh, license sales over, over the preceding period. Um, it was also very safe. We had um, zero incidents. And every single junior hunter age 13 or 14 went out with a mentor. And we knew that would be uh, the, the, the best way for them to learn. Okay. And is there a possibility to having a pilot program for the crosstalk? You know, there's been legislation that's been proposed, proposed to expand that opportunity. And, um, you know, would the department consider a pilot program for that? Well, well. We're certainly amenable to it. Um, we need to be worked out, of course, with the legislature, but uh, we're amenable to a program that helps um, you know, older or, or perhaps uh, uh, you know, difficultly abled uh, hunters getting into the, into the field. You know, it's hard to pull a bow when you get past a certain age, I've heard. Um, yes. But uh, it, 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 the, the crossbow is, a, is, a, is, a, is an important hunting, hunting tool, and to the extent that we can help to expand that in New York, I think it will help the industry writ large. Well, thank you, Commissioner. I've got three seconds left. To the Senate. Conclude. Thank you very much. Okay, Senator Gonzalez is next on the list. Somebody would give her their seat. Thank you so much. Hi, thank you all so much for being here today. I'm Senator Gonzalez. I represent District 59, which, as you probably know, uh, produces the lion's share of the city's energy with Ravenswood, as well as is a site for Hydro Quebec. Quebec has generations of residents that have been deeply affected by the fossil fuel industry, from breathing poisoned air to those down in Brooklyn. Um, you know, Newtown Creek that have generations of people who have passed away because of the largest underground oil spill in the country. So I say all of this to say um, is that this is a priority for my district, and that's why I've been a long-term supporter of the Build Public Renewables Act. And so I do want to ask today, um, because you mentioned in your speech about NIPA um, that you are interested in the Federal Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the IRA's direct pay provision will give NIPA a competitive advantage for the next 10 years over the private sector, as NIPA will not need to include a tax equity investor to take advantage of the ITC, which is the tax investment tax credit, and PTC production tax credit. In the Senate and Assembly's BPRA, the sourcing and bonuses could add value to these of these credits. 
the labor standards in BPRA ensure the fulfillment of these, giving NIPA an even greater advantage over the private developers. So why would the governor's plan to take out that labor provision, and why would NIPA in the governor's proposal merely be seen as a partner in a public-private partnership with tax equity investors instead of leading themselves in order to attain the greatest federal funds? For me, this really means leaving potentially billions of dollars in federal money on the table and handouts to corporate actors. So why wouldn't NIPA do it themselves? Yeah. Thank you for the question. Appreciate it. Um, so one of the things I think that we have to keep in mind is that NIPA, as a public entity, um, all of our work is, is public work, whether work with, that we do with partners or work that we do on our own or in the governor's proposal, even a subsidiary that we created, uh, that work would be public work as well. So the labor, the labor protections start with what's, what's in current law and in labor section 220. So, so we, we start from there. Um, certainly, uh, any additional labor protections um, that we could attach to projects, some of these are on a project-by-project project basis. For instance, our Clean Path New York project, that is the, a DC cable that comes down into Queens also with the Hydro-Quebec line, uh, has a PLA associated with it. Um, so those, those, uh, those types of labor provisions could be done on a case-by-case on a -case basis. Uh, with respect to the in Inflation Reduction Act, I think it is a game changer for the public power sector. We fought for it for 10 years. We're the largest state-owned public power entity and work very closely with all the public power organizations around the country. And I can tell you that we've been lobbying for it in Washington for the last 10 years. So it's an exciting uh, opportunity for us. Um, and we look, look forward to taking full advantage of it. For BPRA or? The for, for Assemblyman uh, Mangtelo, who will be uh, five minutes uh, ranker for this hearing. Thank, thank you, Chairwoman. President Driscoll, I didn't want to leave you out, so I got a couple of questions for you. <laughs> Earlier on, you talked about the project Clearpath New York. Yes. Transmission lines coming into New York City. 7.5 million megawatts per year. Is that correct? Correct. So, so where will that power be coming from? The power is coming from upstate wind and solar. All of it's from wind and solar? Correct. And when, when will those projects be online to provide that much power? So some of the projects are already in existence. Some of them are already owned by Invenergy and will feed into the, the line. Others are in development. And they would all, um, they would all essentially feed into this uh, DC cable that would run in our right-of-way for 100 miles and then run in primarily uh, state rights of way uh, into uh, Queens. Um, and also utilize our Blenheim Gilboa facility in Schoharie County as a, uh, a balancing mechanism uh, to utilize that pump storage plant that we own and operate in Schoharie County. Of the 7.5 million megawatts, how much is being produced today? I'd have to get back to you with a number on that. It would have to, it would have to calculate the number of existing um, facilities that uh, will be contributed to the uh, project through Invenergy's uh, existing projects. But I'd be happy to get you that. Okay. So really no, no ballpark figure at all right now? I don't have a ballpark figure. I think they're, 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 their generation is over 2,000 megawatts of renewable uh, generation that's going to be fed into the line. So uh, some percentage of that is already, are already plants that are in existence. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your uh, answers. Um, 
President Harris. Is that the correct, President? Correct, thank All you. Right. Sounds good, right? Sure does. <laughs> um, in, in my district now and in my former district, prior to redistricting, I had several nuclear power plants in my district. And I just want to know what NYSERDA's position is. is do you see phasing out nuclear power in, in New York State? Yeah, thank you for that, that very um, timely question. We, we, as a council, have spent a, a good amount of the last number of years looking at what we called an integration analysis. And that's really the, I'd say, the framework upon which many of these policies are based, which is really what does it take to achieve these goals. And, and really, one critical finding of our integration analysis was the continued operation, um, the continued safe operation of the upstate nuclear fleet. The facilities that are operating remain um, central to the achievement of our goals, uh, certainly as we head into the coming decades. So, so that was a precondition, really a, a foundational aspect of our analysis. I'd say it also was the case that during the work of the Climate Action Council, we had, as we've heard today, um, major federal um, leverage become available through the Inflation Reduction Act and other policies that required us really to take another look at some of our um, technologies that we may be considering into the future. And as such, um, we, did, we did run some sensitivities that looked at new nuclear technologies that, if made available, what the impacts would be of them in, in the achievement of our goals. And I would say we look to the federal government's investment to really move forward advanced nuclear technologies, but our findings were quite compelling that um, certainly those technologies could be brought forward in ways that were cost reducing and still um, facilitating a significant renewable build out across our state. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're looking at new technologies because I, I believe that they still have to be part of the, part of the whole operation long term. So I'm glad to hear you say that. My, my second question, I only got a minute. Um, you, earlier you outlined some exemptions for gas, um, commercial, kitchen, stuff like that. Is agricultural, is agricultural um, companies, businesses exempt as well? Yes, uh, thank you for asking that question. I've been wanting to make sure that this is clear. Um, so this is referring to the, the buildings legislation that is part of the governor's budget. And, and this is focusing on residential, multifamily, and commercial buildings that are covered by our energy code and our, our, our codes um, across the state. So as such, agricultural buildings, agricultural operations are not covered by this bill. That, that includes corn dryers, that, in, that includes uh, distilleries, people that distill product? Correct. Okay. Correct. I'm out of time, but I thank you all for your time. Thank you for your service, Commissioner. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Rachel May. Thank you, Madam Chair. Hi, everyone. Commissioner Sagos, I have a few questions for you. One of them is about our abundant freshwater resources upstate. Mm. We know they're attractive to industries like uh, semiconductors and crypto mining that are very water intensive. We also expect a lot of people to move to our region because water's drying up around the country and around the world. So I don't think we can leave it to volunteer water association, watershed associations to protect our watersheds. So I'm wondering if we have of a larger vision and the personnel and the policies we need to protect our fresh water from the big threats, contamination, thermal pollution, 
uh, overuse, privatization. Tell me what you think quickly, and then I have a couple other questions too. I know we, we, uh, we yeah, two minutes. So we have um, obviously the funding, right? We've talked a bit about that, record funding for, for water protection, which is super important to, to keep clean water and drinking water, the two different buckets, um, uh, infrastructure well-funded. Um, we have a very robust pollution enforcement program, right? The permitting programs that we have at DEC are, are uh, really among the best and most, most stringent in the nation. And we've been going after, as you know, in concert with the legislature, going after uh, some of those emerging contaminants that have been threatening water supplies. In terms of uh, now looking locally, because I think one of your questions was really a locally focused question, uh, lake associations, things like that, uh, groups that would like to protect water but otherwise can't because of the inability to apply for funds. We're hoping that this, this EFC community assistance team can help to find the lake associations uh, partnerships with uh, municipalities that be willing right. to make those investments jointly together, okay. uh, ultimately protecting the state's, one of the state's greatest resources, which is our water. Great, good to know. Um, this is, I would just need to know why on earth the funding is zeroed out in the EPF for the Climate and Applied Forest Research Institute at uh, SUNY ESF and Cornell. Well, I know that was a, a legislative ad, I think, last year or the year before. Uh, again, it's a fully funded EPF. We'll work with the legislature on the, on the exact okay. uh, funding buckets. And then finally, the governor vetoed a very key environmental justice bill of mine to prevent the siting of schools next to major highways. Do you have a plan for protecting our most vulnerable young people from the dangers of highways? Well, we certainly do, Senator. I mean, when you look at the CLCPA, the scoping plan recognizes the, the threats posed by transportation emissions on sensitive populations, most of those being in disadvantaged communities. So the path that the legislature set us on with uh, creating the scoping plan and now finding a, a long-term actual solution to operationalize, I know over time, once we reduce pollution uh, through transportation investments, uh, stringent, more stringent emissions reductions for transportation, as well as um, the investments in disadvantaged communities that will result in uh, healthier schools. Okay. Let's hope so. Thank you. Thank, thank you. We go to Assembly <coughs> Assemblywoman Simon. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, uh, thank you uh, for your testimony today. Um, Commissioner Segos, thank you so much for meeting uh, with me recently um, about the issues around the Gowanus Canal. Um, as you know, the EPA has required more intense and comprehensive cleanup. We have 47 brownfield sites, which are clearly your department. Um, and robust stakeholder engagement in your testimony was music to my ears because we have not felt that we've gotten that from the state. Um, and this is so critical to protecting the health and safety of the community. Can you tell me what the DEC is doing uh, to clean up to the intermediate level of the aquifer so to achieve the proper standards of cleanups on the brownfields? And how are you really forcing National Grid to do that? It's, it's a great question, and we were able to move the uh, public hearing from tonight uh, after the public outcry on that. So um, yes, we're working very closely with EPA uh, on this, right? We both have, have uh, joint objectives in cleaning up the Gowanus Canal. Um, and um, we have the benefit of having a very robust brownfields and a very robust Superfund program that um, have, while they're different tools, they have the same uh, cleanup objectives in mind. Um, 
we intend to hold national grid and any of the polluters within the Gowanus Canal watershed to, to the uh, highest level of accountability so that we can get the most robust cleanup ultimately and get the site back into the whole creek, uh, the canal back into productive use. Um, we're also, as you know, making incredible investments in water infrastructure and directing the, the city <coughs> DEP to reduce uh, discharges into the canal. Um, so it is, a, we're using every, literally in this case, every single tool at our disposal on this small canal uh, to address some, some pretty major problems. Well, it's a small canal, but it's got big problems, as you know. Right. Um, so a couple of other questions that are related to this, if I can. Uh, one is uh, a concern that, that um, National Grid may not properly characterize all the contamination in the water. We have lots of forever chemicals. Um, and also uh, holding them to report to all of the relevant New York State agencies, because there are a bunch of them, to really communicate that clearly. Um, and um, also the Bon Lorraine sewer is cracked. And um, we really want to uh, focus DEC's intention, uh, you know, attention to enforcing um, uh, that sewer repair. Okay, thank you for raising that. I wasn't aware of the crack. I'm sure my staff is aware, um, but I will get together with them. And just as an update, I also spoke to the regional administrator of the EPA um, about our need to better coordinate on, on Gowanus issues. And I'm happy to report that we have really good alignment with them now. Thank you, because that, that sewer capacity affects the capacity for air and water um, in, the, in the, uh, the whole area. Yes. And it's going to blow up if we don't fix it. So, okay. thank you. Thank you. We go to uh, Senator Steck. Thank you, Madam Chair. Good afternoon, all three. Thanks for being here today for your efforts on behalf of our state. Um, first question, I guess, for uh, President Harris and Driscoll. Uh, a couple weeks ago here in this uh, room, we had a hearing on the climate action scoping plan. And uh, one of the analysis that came up in uh, testimony came out that there's a $272 billion price estimate on the cost to fully implement that. Do you agree with that figure? Does that figure seem reasonable or uh, accurate to you? So certainly, as I had indicated, um, earlier in an answer, we, we did assess costs and benefits as part of our integration analysis that led to the publication of the scoping plan. And really, on balance, that's where we have concluded that there are far more benefits than there are costs in, in executing on this program. The headline for the sort of net benefits is over $100 billion in benefits. And so those benefits reside in the categories of health benefits. I want to mention $150 billion in health benefits that we can recognize as a state, um, as well as not even counting the hundreds of thousands of jobs that we will see forward. So we see this as an investment, but an investment that is very much worth it. All right. But you do agree with the, the price I have tag? To, I will the, check. I, I have the, the other number right here. I'll double check that one. All right. That, all right. I'll, I'll yep. move on because I've, I've got five minutes. Um, uh, last year we closed Indian Point. Uh, it was also reported last year the uh, summer capacity downstate was 92% fossil fuels compared to 30% in upstate. Uh, DEC adopted a rule that uh, more stringently limits nitrogen oxides. As a result, a couple of peak power plants were uh, not allowed to uh, renew their, uh, their permits and move forward, and that's going to take a gigawatt of power off the grid. Uh, my concern, uh, Commissioner Sagos, is uh, you know, are we following the footsteps of Germany? Their goal for 2030 is 600 terawatts, and they're only at 250 terawatts now. Um, 
So, so do you think, uh, where, where is this capacity going to come from as we're closing down other options to us? I know that we've got a hydro line that's going to be coming our way, but, uh, you know, are, are we making a mistake in limiting our, our options where this capacity for energy is coming from? Um, uh, Senator, with your uh, indulgence, I might defer to my energy colleague. Fair enough. It certainly, and I, and I can confirm the cost range from the integration analysis as 270 to $295 billion. So I just want to make sure that I put that in the record as well. Fair enough. With respect to New York City, certainly this is one of the greatest challenges we have in decarbonizing our grid. Um, we are fully aware um, as to the both the challenge and I would say the opportunity that it creates for us to really create those health benefits that I just described. In fact, when one looks at the projects that we are advancing, offshore wind, solar, um, two major transmission projects, the Clean Path New York project and the Champlain Hudson Power Express project, mm -hmm. altogether we're talking about 80% reduction in the greenhouse gas emissions um, serving New York City when those projects are constructed. So we know this is one of our biggest uh, needs and one that we've set out to achieve. All right, and again, I'm looking at the, our grid and our power system holistically. So, you know, I question our, our ultimate capacity to meet demand. Um, and, uh, but assuming that uh, we get through all the land acquisition, eminent domain, design, supply chain, construction, eventually we're going to build out a distribution system and work our way all the way down to urban areas in, like New York City. Uh, so I'm thinking about electric vehicle charging stations in densely populated areas. So in New York City, uh, all, eventually all cars are going to be electric powered. I'm wondering what our plan for the electric uh, vehicle charging station infrastructure is going to look like. Right now, New York City is currently installing 120 charging uh, ports across five boroughs. And uh, their goal for 2030 is 10,000 charging points. And yet there's 3 million parking spaces on streets. And that's a third of 1% by 2030. Um, you know, I mean, I noticed a lot of places have a hard time striping parking spaces, let alone running electrical infrastructure to them. Uh, is this all achievable? What, and what is the plan for EV charging in urban areas? Yes, certainly. Um, it, it is uh, the case that it is a particular challenge in New York City. I agree with you because parking is a particular challenge in New York City. Um, and as a result, when we think about the solutions that are brought to bear in these urban environments, um, they may differ, certainly, than those, as an example, the $175 million of federal money we're using for our highways as a great example of the urban um, pathways. We at NYSERDA um, have a program, um, Charge Ready New York, that is really focused on multi-unit dwellings, urban areas, and the like, and I'd be, we're gonna, I could send you those details for sure. Thank you. Thank send you. us all the details. Thank you very yeah. much. Assembly. Assemblywoman Septimo. Thank you all for being here. I'm going to sort of rapid fire as much as I can in these three minutes. Um, first, does the executive budget adhere to the mandate that at least 35% of clean energy spending be to the benefit of environmental justice in disadvantaged communities? That's probably just a yes or no. Yes. Okay, great. Um, and now the cap and invest proposal outlined in the climate scoping plan discussed the need to build safeguards 
uh, for disadvantaged communities to avoid pollution hotspots. Um, wondering what measures will be included to sort of act as these safeguards and specifically will offsets and allowance trading be prohibited? So we're, we're in the early stages of designing this program. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, you know, we will be rolling this out over the course of this entire year. Um, uh, we've started our initial outreach to the environmental justice community as well as the regulated community to, to begin establishing that, that, that framework. When it comes to the environmental justice issues and um, uh, we look right back at what the governor told us, that, that the program that we designed must result in a decrease in emissions within disadvantaged communities. So that's exactly where we will land, and I, and I will, can't tell you exactly what it will look like at that point, but it, it certainly will not allow uh, trading uh, inside and outside of disadvantaged communities. Okay, great. Want to make sure we keep that as a North Star, especially representing the South Bronx. Um, I'm going to sneak one more quick question in. Uh, the recently approved Bond Act includes $500 million for electric school buses and charging infrastructure. Can you tell us a little bit about the formula that will go into divvying up that money? So this is an area where we at NYSERDA will have a particular role in really um, expanding and uh, I would say centralizing our work with school systems. Um, it is one that is a work in progress as okay. to the, the frameworks that we'll employ, but suffice it to say it will involve not only robust engagement, but the education department as well in ways in which we can not only roll these out, but provide the tools and resources to be successful in doing so. Great, and so representing the South Bronx, I just want to plug that we have frontline communities that have been at the, the front line of impact of environmental abuse for years. We want to make sure that we're at the front of the line of receiving these um, benefits when they come to be. Um, and then the final question, um, NYSERDA's cost benefit study said that the state needed at least $10 billion a year to fund all the policies necessary to meet our climate goals. Even if cap and invest happens to its maximum, you're not getting to 10 billion. So are there other funding streams created in this budget to help meet those goals? So certainly there will, cap and invest as, as the commissioner described is going to be a process that will take a period of time to really um, reconcile as to the ultimate revenues it may raise. Um, I, for the purposes of investing. And that's the reason, really, that we're excited and committed to advancing additional policies necessary to achieve the level of investment necessary to, to realize this transition, not only through investments in our grid and our buildings. We just talked about transportation. I'm with just the out of time, so I'm going to say thank you. Thank you. Um, but want to make sure that we're hitting goals that are realistic if we're setting them. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Senator so John Liu. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thanks for joining us this afternoon in this hearing. Uh, first question for Commissioner Sagos. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for your continuing great work. Thank you. Um, last year, I believe, uh, your, your agency denied a permit for one crypto mining facility. Um, and then later, the governor at long last signed the bill that we passed last year to have a, mor a two-year moratorium on new fossil, f fossil fuel burning plants that would be for crypto mining purposes. Yes. Do you think those policies are consistent with each other? And if so, is a two-year moratorium sufficient to keep us in line with the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act? I believe it is, Senator. Um, it it uh, is consistent with our climate uh, obligations as well as our, our recognition of, of um, 
our need to process permits quickly, right? Um, now we have a two-year moratorium to look at the entire industry. Um, it is relatively narrow slice of it, right? Those operations that are that are powered by fossil fuels. Uh, but we are uh, shortly going to release an RFP for the consultant that will be doing the environmental impact statement on the industry, which will help then guide um, our future actions. Okay, so during this two-year moratorium, you, you think that your agency will be able to provide those guidelines so that when we emerge from the two-year moratorium, then potentially these crypto mining companies will know exactly what they need to do in order to stay compliant with the climate and lead. CLC Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Yes, I do believe so, I, and I do believe um, it's enough time for us to pro to to um, create a sufficient environmental impact statement that can then inform okay. future action. Okay, great, thank you. I don't get a lot of time. I was just wondering uh, from NYSERDA or from NYPA, uh, what, if anything, do either of your agencies expect from President Biden's Infrastructure Act? Because you did make reference to it before. Um, one component uh, would be the uh, the NEVI funding on the EV on EV charging to to fill in gaps in the heavily traveled corridors. We're working with the state uh, Department of Transportation to try to secure as much NEVI funding as we can. That's in the IIJA. And how how much do you think that could be? That how much do you think that could be? That's one hundred and seventy-five million dollars. And you have a clear plan for how to invest that one hundred seventy-five million. Yes, our, our plan was actually approved last year, and we're moving quickly to establish investments in some areas of our state that really need. So if the plan was approved, does that mean that, fund, that money is forthcoming? Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Assembly. Assemblywoman Warner. Thank you all, and I'm gonna pick up where um, my colleague, uh, Senator Liu, left off. Um, so the NEVI funding, my understanding is that that requires uh, that that on the major transportation corridors there be uh, four charging stations for every 50 miles. So at a rest stop plaza there'd be four fast charging stations so that you can concurrently uh, charge four vehicles. I read uh, a, a report recently that suggested that um, under those, those parameters that a uh, you would need, in 2030, we would need to have a transmission capability equivalent to uh, five, me or for five megawatts, which is equivalent to a small sports stadium, uh, the power required, and that when you get out to 2040, uh, based on the volume of uh, anticipated EVs, we're talking about each plaza needing uh, power equivalent to 20 megawatts, which is a basically a small town's worth of power. Um, so given the amount of time it takes to permit transmission, um, have you got a plan in place already um, that, that specifies the amount of capacity needed to be delivered um, at each of the charging stations or charging locations 50 miles apart on the major corridors? Um, and I'm going to just expand that to say, by the way, school bus garages, which also need a lot of fast charging all at once. Um, so that we know that, as, that we have the ability to deliver the capacity at the time the demand is there. Yes, uh, thank you, Assemblymember. That is a very critical question for the entire aspect of, of the change that we are effectuating. And I'm, I'm sure Chair Christian and the next panel will have more to say in this respect. Um, however, this is very much part of our planning, not only for the bulk. We, part of our integration analysis says our electric load will double 
in the coming uh, decades. So we're planning in the bulk system from the perspective of generation and, and transmission in major corridors, but also with respect to specific utility investments um, within the distribution system. Um, notably, um, great example is the work that we've done with National Grid to look at just this build out that you are describing um, among the major corridors, but also with respect to the housing um, stock within the communities as well. So, so yes, um, we know where we are heading. Um, we have a number of commission proceedings that will help us invest in this way, including a number of items that are still underway um, with utility investments and beyond. Thank you. Um, and in my last uh, 20 seconds, uh, Commissioner Segos, um, aerosolized PFAS, um, are we still waiting on the EPA to create a standard that you can use in your air permitting uh, so that we can, uh, as you're doing new air permitting, take into account aerosolized PFAS? I believe we are. Um, let me double check and get back to the body and let you all know where we are on that. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you, Senator. Thank you. Sorry. Senator Matera. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you for the panel. Thank you so much for your testimonies today. Very serious for our future. And um, I would like you to elaborate again, uh, President um, Harris, about what uh, Senator Steck was saying about um, uh, electrical vehicles in dense areas, parking spots, the city, Long Island, we do have dense areas and how by 2030 this, again, people are frightened right now with the hearing. So please, can you elaborate what the question was that Senator Steck, please? Certainly. So when we look at urban areas, it is the case that we need to be offering creative solutions to electric vehicle charging in those urban um, areas. For sure, I had mentioned the Charge Ready New York program as a great example of ways in which we at NYSERDA are making direct investments in those manners, in that manner. Um, I would also say, though, and, and wor the work of our Climate Action Council revealed broader mobility needs that extend beyond electric vehicle charging. I would say one of the major reasons we have so many health benefits is that people will actually be walking more and, and finding other ways of trans, you know, transporting themselves from place to place. So one other area we're working on at NYSERDA is sort of these last mile issues. How does one get from one's residence to a train station as an example of other types of electrification that we may pursue? I, you're still not answering the question, though. Sure. I'm sorry. Is this feasible by 2030 <laughs> that this is going to be done? Because all New Yorkers need to know this question. They are frightened because anybody that I speak to, especially, especially they're going to be shutting the gas off, and you're not going to be able to go and purchase a gas stove, a boiler to replace. Everybody's like, this can't be happening. What are we doing to get this out to people to say, mm -hmm. guess what? We want you to be confident that we, Mr that we are here for you, and then this is going to be, this is going to happen, this mandate is going to happen. Thank you for that, clarifying your question. Um, certainly when we look at 2030, the goals in the climate law for 2030, we do see them as feasible, and we see them as a way, you're correct, in ensuring that we are communicating accurately with New Yorkers across the state. Um, as an example, we are not taking away gas stoves as one example of perhaps mis misinformation that we need to correct, but also the fact that we are going about this in a measured and deliberate way 
that does not create um, cliffs or um, specific reasons for alarm. Um, this is a very rational, thought-out plan. But, but there is an alarm. Um, I do have, I am a ranker. Don't I have a little bit more than three minutes? Um, I was wondering also, too, the um, to President Dizwal, uh, sorry, I'm saying that. Approximately 50% of our energy is produced from other states, approximately. My question is, what are we doing? And I mentioned this, I actually was at the other hearing, the CAC hearing. What are we doing that these are fossil fuel plants? What are we doing to take these transmission lines off the line by 2030? Senator Materi, you should have had five and you got three, so keep going. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> two, two more. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you for the, for the question, Senator. I think, you know, it's, it's a complex question, but I think what we're looking to do in this transition, of course, is to build out um, an, an, a new grid, a decentralized grid with a lot of behind-the-meter solutions, a lot of, a lot of uh, what they call virtual power plants, vehicle-to-grid power, uh, fleet, fleet electrification. All this is going to come together to take the place of whatever with the generation you're referring to. We're also building out substantial wind and solar, and, and as we've testified, uh, with these two DC cables that are going to be coming into the New York City area, another source of baseload generation uh, that will be available to, uh, to the system. So it, it, I think it's a combination of behind-the-meter decentralized grid coupled with more renewable build-out. Great. And this could cost, just so everybody knows this, and I'm, I'm going to ask both questions so I'm going to answer this. This could cost up to each homeowner by 2030 $50,000 per home to retrofit their home. And my question is, who is going to pay for this? And I would like to know, too, we, we talked about $270 billion, which that number, I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from, because that's probably going to be quadruple, that, quadruple, uh, ten, 10 times more, the amount, especially this to just do New York City. But my question is, who will be paying for this retrofit? Who is going to be paying for the grid? Which, again, I'm going to say this, I am for renewable energy, but who is going to be paying for this? So this is one of the reasons that when we think about the, specifically the equipment um, transition that we're talking about for heating, we're looking to capture people when they're replacing their existing equipment. Because that's one major reason. We're not uh, wanting this to occur out of cycle, if you will. Um, so that's one key part of this. I'd say the second part of it is with respect to cost issues. We are very committed not only to helping all New Yorkers with their costs, but the federal government. Um, and in fact, at NYSERDA, we have $300 million coming in plus this, just this year to help invest in that transition as well. Okay. The federal you. government. That's... Uh, Please, we can't rely on that. Thank you, Senator Martara. Assembly. Thank you. Assemblyman Brown. Hello, everyone. How are you? I'll start with uh, Commissioner Sagos. How are you today? Good, sir. So um, <clears throat> my question, the first one, uh, relates to the DEC plans uh, to help manage Long Island solid waste. Um, with the Brookhaven landfill closing in less than two years, um, is there a regional plan in place uh, to handle the solid waste uh, that we have on Long Island? 
Well, uh, we're working very closely with all the municipalities on the island who have been managing their waste over the years, and now with a shrinking number of, of destinations for them. Um, there is a build-out of uh, waste-by-rail facilities, as you, as you are probably aware, uh, around the island to get that waste off the island. Um, but we know that's never going to be enough. I mean, that's really the impetus behind the, the EPR work that we're doing, the Waste Reduction Act. We need to reduce the amount of waste that we create. The recycling market's been in shambles for several years. Um, so we need to find ways to, to reduce waste and ultimately get what we do recycle um, uh, to market quickly. So um, I'll, I'll skip the EPR. Um, okay. So in the proposal in the budget for EPR, um, is there any part of it that calls for advanced recycling? Um, and if not, why not? Um, if you're talking about chemical uh, recycling, uh, there is not. Um, we don't believe that, that such recycling exists in a way that's uh, sustainable right now, but there may well be advanced recycling in the future that would work. Um, so perhaps we need to revisit that in the future. It's my understanding there's about 18, 21 states, including mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, Virginia, um, that have uh, promoted uh, the manufacturing of uh, advanced recycling and in order to reduce the, the streams that we're talking about. Right. So it's something that I'd like to uh, work on with you and discuss with you in the future. I'm happy to talk more about it with you. Thank you. And then um, I also want to ask you about uh, the state's allocated $150 million for septic replacement programs. How much of that has been spent? Um, I'll have to get you the exact breakdown of it. I mean, we spent it statewide, but the bulk of it on Long Island, as you know, um, with a, a significant percentage up in Lake George. Um, let me not speculate, but get you the, the actual figures. I would appreciate that. Thank you. And I just want to skip over to um, President uh, of uh, NIPA, if I could. With respect to um, the electric production from gas-fired pico plants, I notice that um, we have until 2035. I have the Northport Power Plant within my assembly district. Um, so the question is, you know, how we're going to achieve that mark, um, and particularly because we have such large substations next most uh, of the pico plants on Long Island, and, and those being valuable assets for our host communities. Um, and in the second part of my question, not right now, if you could answer the question. Uh, <coughs> With respect You've used up your time. There's no answer time. All right. Um, but they can get back to you. I'd be happy afterwards. to provide that information to you. They get back to you in writing. If you please, you'll have a long list of things to get back to us on. So add it to the list to send to Helene and I, and we'll make sure all the members of the committees get everything. Thank you. Oh, now back to the Senate, and we are up to Senator Ramos. Awesome. Um, all right. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so my questions are for Ms. Harris. Um, I want to start by talking about the cap and invest proposal that's in the executive budget. Glad you're familiar. I am wondering, um, well, I'm assuming that part of this money is going to be to incentivize projects and programs related to the CLCPA. Are there going to be any labor standards uh, attached, and will they be similar to what the Climate Action Council has been recommending? Yes, thank you for that question, Senator. And certainly uh, the investments will be consistent with the CLCPA. That I can assure you. Uh, we'll be investing across all sectors of our economy to achieve the outcomes of the Act. And as such, I would say that it will be a variety of, it, of investments. Um, certainly we'll be talking about that in the coming months. <coughs> And throughout, I would say, the governor has been clear that 
supporting our state's workforce and really building uh, this this just and reasonable future for our yeah, workforce. It's a value statement that we don't really see carry out throughout the budget, but I appreciate your answer. I have another question, um, something that you won't know about, and, uh, but is important. So on January 28th, six Central and South American workers died in a crash in Louisville, New York, Center Stux District, while on their way to work for a company called LBFNY. It's a solar farm in St. Lawrence County. I'm wondering if NYSERDA provided any funding for that project, if it's a NYSERDA project, and whether you guys would do an investigation into the death of these men. Certainly. I, I, I did see um, the news of the accident, and I'm so sorry to hear it. In fact, I, I have a son who's up at college up there, and I had seen the, the news. We can certainly look into it. I, I do not know um, as to the, the background. All right. P please do. Obviously, this is of great concern. Um, we don't want to see our migrants and newly arrived New Yorkers to be trafficked or taken advantage of on any project whatsoever. And since I see I have a little bit of time, um, wondering uh, in terms of decarbonization, why there is not a more definitive plan in the budget as to how we're going to move forward with retrofitting and decarbonizing. Well, uh, the governor's budget does include a critical aspect of this with the um, equipment uh, phase out for um, fossil fuel heating equipment. In addition, the budget includes $200 million for an expansion of our Empower program, which is really focusing on low some, some, you know, um, Ms. Harris, some of our own public buildings and campuses are probably the largest emitters. Are there specific plans for those? So certainly, um, well, NYPA could, could speak to that as well as some of the investments that are relevant within the Bond Act. We're doing work for our governmental customers, such as the entities that you mentioned, to try to help them on their decarbonization journey. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Assembly. Uh, Assemblywoman Jen Lunsford. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to piggyback off of uh, Assemblymember Septimel's questions from earlier. Uh, this is for NYSERDA. For the $500 million for the electric school buses, uh, how many electric school buses, assuming we could get them, would $500 million buy? I will have to get back to you on the actual, the, um, the numbers themselves. A conservative estimate, because I do a lot of work on this in my district. I love the electric school buses. My districts are excited about it. It's less than 1,000, which is less than 2% of the total school buses in our state. Is there a plan moving forward over the next 10 plus years to continue to help offset this cost for our districts who are, again, excited about this, but it would be you know, an enormous load on the uh, school taxpayers? Yes, certainly. I, I can recognize that and understand it. Um, we have a lot of details to dig into, including capacity within the school districts themselves. And of course, you know, the issues around actually sourcing some of these buses is a great concern to my district, some of whom have said we'd buy them if we can get them. Uh, RGRTA, we're talking about public buses, right now has the largest electric fleet in the state, and they are ready to buy more, they're ready to expand, but they're just not there. Uh, is there anything we can do to help with supply chain issues, particularly given some of the technologies that are emerging in our state? Well, certainly on my mind is the fact that we actually have a burgeoning supply chain here in the state of New York, notably within northern New York, uh, where we see this, this ecosystem of transportation, electrification, really uh, taking shape. 
And so as such, when we think about our investments, we always think so, think about it in the context not only of, of Buy American provisions, but also benefits to New York and the companies within it. All right, thank you very much. I'm going to uh, move to Commissioner Sagos. Uh, I see here there's a $575,000 cut to municipal recycling programs. Uh, can you explain that cut and what the DEC is either currently doing or can do to support recycling programs as the market for recyclables changes? Hmm. Um, well, we are aiming to hit recycling head on through the uh, Waste Reduction Act, and that's, that's, the, that's the heart of it, right? Um, we need to obviously help to the greatest extent possible the municipalities with their recycling burden. But we have recognized that the only way to do this is to reduce the amount of waste we generate in the first place. And otherwise, we'll just keep spending out of the EPF to, to fix a problem that's frankly just broken at this point nationally, not just here in New York. Um, so by, by reducing this waste, cutting the waste streams significantly over the next five to seven years, we're going to save municipalities millions of dollars um, that they're spending right now to manage a waste stream that's just impossible at this stage. Thank you very much. I'll see you my time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, excuse me. Senator Gunardis. Okay, thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my questions are for DEC. Good afternoon, Commissioner. Um, I represent, newly represent, the neighborhood of Gowanus. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure you know, there has been a great deal of consternation at DEC's involvement in the Gowanus cleanup and how that affects and implicates the future development plan for that site. Um, I know we were supposed to have a community meeting tonight with the elected officials. I'm glad we postponed that because we're obviously all up here talking to you here and not back home. Um, so my, my first question is, you, what is DEC doing right now to clean up in this area, especially the intermediate level? Um, of the aquifer in that region? And then secondly, um, do you have enough resources? Do you have enough, I mean, I feel like every time I hear from folks, it's like DEC is not responsive enough. They're not at the table. They're not getting back to us. They're not here. Do you have the resources you need to complete this job? So um, the Gowanus, as you, as you know, is one of the more complicated cleanups in the state, if not the country, uh, given the intensity of toxicity uh, in the soil, in the water, groundwater. Uh, and the number of properties that we're dealing with, the potential responsible parties. So we're working in concert, concert with the EPA. Uh, the relationship is, is a strong one. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been in uh, direct communication with the EPA regional administrator about our need to improve communications writ large uh, on, this, on this cleanup. We are employing both our state Superfund program, $100 million a year average, um, as well as our Brownfields program with some of the eligible properties to fix those problems. And we're, we're going to hold the polluters to the highest standard, period. We want the site to get back to productive reuse. We understand that there's incredible interest in that area. And ultimately, we want to make sure whatever gets there is going to be protective of human health. Sure, I appreciate that. I'll just tell you, um, as a new representative in this community, the number one thing I hear from people has been, you know, obviously it's complicated, there's multiple agencies. The lack of communication and responsiveness from DEC has been probably the single greatest thing I've heard, um, which then makes it harder to kind of figure out how we move forward. And so. Um, I know it's challenging. I really hope we can work on improving that and really bringing that up to the standard because a lot of folks, that's their number one issue is the lack of responsiveness or communication from DEC. Uh, my other question for you is, um, you know, we are, New York City is projecting a nearly 67% increase in the volume of truck traffic, mostly mm -hmm. from overnight deliveries because they've exploded throughout the pandemic. 
Um, what role does DEC have in allowing last mile warehouses to be opened? Um, and how can we strengthen oversight over whatever process does currently exist? Well, I'll tell you, Senator, we don't really have a role. We don't have jurisdiction on determining the last mile. Um, it's an issue we But they do get permitting, is that correct? Well, they get permitted some, by DEC? Well, to some degree, but we aren't making judgments about the, we aren't allowed to make judgments about what goes, what goes in at the end of the, uh, at the end of the, under the line. Um, if it's a water, per, water permit they need, they need to come to us. If it's an air permit, they need to come to us. But if it's merely the creation of a facility to move large amounts of product, then we, we, we currently don't have a role. Oh, I'd love to talk to you more about that because it's a problem in a lot of EJ communities yes. that Thank are you. bearing that burden. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Assembly. Assemblyman Smolin. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I've got a, a lightning round of questions for, for each of you, as I am usually uh, here to do. I want to start with President Harris first. You, uh, you finally admitted a number in public, 270-some billion dollars for the cost. Uh, when will the cost-benefit analysis next be updated? Because this is an evolving process, as we see, and uh, it's, been, it's been very troublesome to know what the cost is to weigh it off against the benefits, because you know, someone's going to pay for this, uh, you know, this plan. Well, certainly there's a couple of next steps that we'll be taking through which additional analyses around cost will be um, advanced. I think the state energy plan will be the next aspect of our work in which we are advancing additional efforts to plan around this transition. Okay. Um, the Climate Action Council's work will also be subject to periodic reviews. Uh, five years? Five years. Um, so, so more to come, certainly, and specific initiatives in the meantime, which will all be subject to robust scrutiny. So you're, you're, so you're committing to a public release of not only the plan, but all the underlying analysis that goes with that plan. I appreciate that very much. Commissioner Segos, we're we talking about the, uh, the uh, cap and invest uh, mm -hmm. taxing scheme that we're going to do to pay for this, uh, you know, this clean energy transition. You know, we're going to double our electricity uh, consumption. Uh, New York already has, a, it's one of the highest states in the United States for electricity rates, about 19 cents uh, per kilowatt hour average. Uh, only some, you know, some other high tax states are even higher. Uh, how, how will you as a regulator uh, are going to be responsible to develop a plan mm. uh, instead of it being where it typically is, whether it's at the federal level or at the, in other states, to actually be legislated where there's some accountability? How are you going to go about that regulation? Well, as you know, uh, Senator uh, Sullivan, the, the thanks uh, for the promotion. Yes, congratulations <laughs> on that. Uh, well done. Um, the legislature passed CLCPA in 2019, required us to promulgate regulations by the end of this calendar year on an economy-wide program, and we looked at all of the economy-wide programs and landed on cap and invest because it's the one that enables us to hit affordability, uh, reducing emissions in, in, in environmental justice communities, uh, promoting linkages. You know, all of the things that I set off in my original testimony. Um, it will be incumbent upon us over the next few months to, per, to even get to the start of proposing draft regulations right. in a way that protects New York businesses and consumers. The governor's given us marching orders on this, and the, pro the program will not go forward unless we can find a program that works. Thanks. Uh, we'll be really interested in what those marching orders are because, President Driscoll, uh, you've been handed a monumental task, which is to build out renewables, which no other state has been successful in doing to the level of in actually increasing our energy supply. Are you going to be able to do that at or above the current cost per kilowatt hour? You know, you know exactly what NIPA produces at what level. How are you going to do that? 
Well, I think you know that you're absolutely right. Uh, we are uh, facing a great challenge. Uh, NIPA has always been uh, an entity that's been able to step up and face those challenges, um, and we're going to be looking to do it in the most economic way possible. I'm sorry that I'm not able to complete the answer. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Walczak. Commissioner Sagos. Hey, well, congratulations for making it through so far today. I know it's been a long day, guys. Um, don't close Hamilton County's campgrounds early. That would be my one request to you. You don't need to respond. I would just want to meet you, um, tell you that that's very important to, uh, to the community that I represent. President Harris. Thank you. Uh, President Harris, uh, you mentioned affordability is one of the governor's five core principles, which I appreciate. When should residents be able to opt out of the um, system's benefit charges? Can you phrase the question in any other way? Uh, you know, yeah, so currently on every electrical bill, residents are paying a system's benefit charge. It goes to your organization. When should they be able to not pay a system's benefit charge anymore? Is it... <laughs> 2035? Well, there's existing programs that are authorized by the Public Service Commission, and those programs establish um, charges that appear on utility bills that are subject to the contracts that we sign. Um, so there are programs that are approved that pay against these, um, these programs for the, the coming number of decades in some instances. Okay. The governor's proposal to ban natural gas exempts hospitals, commercial kitchens, yes. uh, stoves, et cetera, as you, uh, you mentioned. Uh, will residents currently paying service charges be able to drop those if they disconnect from natural gas, or will they continue to pay uh, those service charges? So is there a specific service charge you're referring to? Yeah, service charges for natural gas if they drop natural gas. So if you're not paying for gas service, you don't pay for gas service charges? So they'll be able to drop those service charges if they disconnect their natural gas? To my understanding, yes. So why would we want to put natural gas charges on hospitals, restaurants, and the few residents that are still connected just for their stoves? Wouldn't, wouldn't we suggest then that a fewer and fewer, a smaller group is not going to be able to afford natural gas in New York State? Thank you for clarifying the, the reason for your question. Uh, so certainly these issues were those that we, we talked about a lot as a council and, and really as part of this gas system transition, which is what remaining gas system do we need and how do we pay for it? Um, the Public Service Commission has a number of proceedings moving forward which really grapple and, and deal with this question, um, knowing that there are critical facilities that would require gas service. And to your point, this would occur over many decades, this transition. We've got a lot of single-family home residents that are concerned about what they've seen and read, and rightly so, about the affordability. And I'm glad that that's one of the core values. Uh, when is the governor going to uh, fully electrify her single-family home down the street here? Uh, I can tell you that we're working closely with OGS on greening up the uh, residents, um, looking at, um, it may be off-site generation, but looking at solutions that can green up the residents. Thank you. Next up is Assemblymember Shresh. So, or it's Tresh Thaw. Pardon me if I got you wrong. Tresh you got it. Okay. Hi, my first um, question is for Acting President Driscoll. So, the governor's proposal leaves uh, to the discretion of the trustees 
which projects you would build and how many and so on. Um, so effectively there is no mandate and I know that's been something that you have been advocating for is to get that discretion. Um, as the acting president of NIPA, do you think you can guarantee that NIPA will build the amount of public renewables that's needed when we see that there's a shortcoming uh, from the private sector? Well, thank you for the question. I think you know the, this question of the Board of Trustees is so important uh, to our operations because it's what the uh, what our bondholders uh, signed up for and rely upon. It's what the rating agencies uh, rely upon, and the good governance that the trustees provide to our decision making is is essential. Um, I can tell you that um, we will make prudent financial decisions that will help us accelerate our progress toward achieving the state's clean energy goals in, in whatever way NIPA uh, is well positioned to do. But do you think you will be prioritizing meeting that goal? Will that be the intention? Yes. Okay. Um, and also similarly, there is discretion in the um, annual review. So it says that you know there will be periodical review, but it doesn't say how many and so on. Do you think that um, an annual review is a reasonable uh, bare minimum frequency for that? And, and this is to review if there's a shortage on the state's progress on the renewable energy. Are you referring to the, the confer provision where we confer with our sister agencies? Yes. yes. So I think that that's, that's also essential because NYSERDA will have a much better um, perspective and visibility into the pipeline and the projects, what projects are having difficulty where NYPA might uh, be uh, well positioned to step in, so but, yes. But do you think that annual review is a reasonable frequency? I, 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 I could, I, I'm sure we could live with an annual review. <laughs> because we only have seven years to get to, um, I think, 70% of renewable energy by 2030. So to me, annual review sounds like the bare minimum um, we should be doing. And um, I also have a question for, um, for Doreen. Um, are there projects right now that are stuck in, in litigation that, that are in your queue, perhaps, in your approach? I would not be able to describe the actual projects, but certainly okay. many projects have, um, well, particular challenges, and, and I'm sure among them is, is litigation. And um, how many projects do you think uh, from your queue have dropped out private projects from being unprofitable? Thank you. Um, so NYSERDA's um, project queue is quite robust and quite durable. We've seen very limited projects um, withdraw um, on the order of a handful at this point. All right, thank, thank you so you. much. Senator Salazar. Thank you. Um, and thank you, all three of you, for your testimony. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask um, for either Commissioner or President Harris um, about uh, the governor's uh, proposal in the executive budget um, regarding transitioning to eventually to all electric buildings. Um, why could either of you just talk about perhaps um, why it is important for us to tackle emissions in the building sector and particularly important? Certainly, yes, this has been, thank you for that question. Uh, I would say it is of critical importance for our state um, to address our building stock. We learned that uh, buildings are the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in our state. And what we see today is uh, a series of proposals that starts us on the path to address those buildings. Um, for clarity, the proposal is a zero emission 
building um, for new construction. So it would retain optionality for alternative fuels um, to heat and um, power the home if, if needed. However, it is also the case that we need to address our existing buildings. And certainly in starting this, the proposal is to advance um, not, uh, zero emission heating equipment uh, for the existing buildings when they have the equipment that needs to be replaced. So that is a goal for 2030 for low rise and 2035 for um, higher rise buildings, really capturing those existing buildings when those investments will naturally be made. So um, the proposal in the executive budget um, to prohibit fossil fuel burning equipment in, in new, newly constructed apartment buildings, um, it seems that it's, it's three stories or less by essentially 2026. It's the, the deadline being mm -hmm. December, mm -hmm. right? No, but, but um, not to, just to say, this differs from, say, the proposal in the All Electric Buildings Act, um, which is five stories um, by you know the same deadline. Um, is there a rationale for uh, three stories instead of five in the executive budget proposal? Yes. Um, so this was designed to align with the ways in which our code is constructed in our state. Um, really, for these multifamily buildings, that three-story cutoff. Um, is, is approached differently in our code. Um, so that's the very specific reason um, that we're advancing it in that manner. Are you concerned that failing to capture buildings that are taller than three stories um, in the, the ban until 2029 um, would mean that new construction under the governor's housing development proposal would be adding a, quite a lot of fossil fuel burning buildings to our state's housing stock in the meantime? Yes, it's, it, that's, that's a great question, and we are working to really move those new buildings forward as a model, um, as a model um, to the extent that we possibly can, even in the meantime. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Sorry. Thank you. Assembly Member Harvey Epstein. Hi, President Harris. How are you doing today? Hello. Hello. So you have 11,000 EV charging stations in New York State. How many of them are publicly available so anyone in New York could just drive up and plug their car in at 11,000? So the breakdown is approximately two to 3,000 are, are publicly available. And, and that means like on the street or in a mall that they can just pull up correct. without a without a paywall? Oh, well, I mean accessible to but, your... But not in a garage where you have to pay... Correct. Like, $600 a month ago, it's like on the street and accessible. So 20% are publicly available out of your 11,000? Correct. Right, and so obviously we want move people to move by 2035 to have EV vehicles. We're gonna need them to be able to charge their vehicles. I live in Manhattan and it's impossible to get, it would be, that's not behind a paywall. I, I really encourage you to be thinking about more opportunities than you said the three ways earlier. But across our state, real opportunities to be able to plug in because people aren't going to buy electric vehicles if they can't charge them on, you know, on our streets in the state. Thank you for that. And, and your valuable input is helping us to better inform the programs yeah. like those that I described. So how would anyone know that the, there's an EV charger available? Because on the, there's no, on the state website, um, it just lists all the chargers, but not whatever ones are publicly available. Where can we, someone go to look for publicly available charging? 
Well, there's a variety of, of tools and resources. Um, certainly me as a new EV owner, I'm learning all of these various apps and the like, but there are a variety. But they aren't because like there's ChargePoint and EV Connect and all these other places, but they don't say they're publicly available. They just say there's a charger there. Mm -hmm. So I really have been asking the state to make sure that they're the point person to say, we need to make sure that these are publicly available for New Yorkers. And I encourage you to either create a system or an app or have mm -hmm. your website really sure. dictate that because it's Thank you. now impossible. Thank you. For people. Um, Commissioner Bez, Bez, I just wanted to talk to you about composting the food donations. Great that we've got food scraps and the law that we passed, uh, 1.5 million pounds. But like even in this building, no one can compost. Like it's, there's like, we, we're not being leaders here. And third contributing cause to climate change is food waste going into our garbage yes. system. So, you know, what, I know we only have 40 seconds, but like we need a better plan and OGS has got to be part of the plan, but OGS has no plan for composting. I'm wondering how we get them to move forward on their Climate Action Council report to get them to, to you, know, you know, anaerobic digesters or your local composters. So like, Did, we have no infrastructure. It's a great question. And the governor signed Executive Order 22, uh, directing DEC and I serve OGS actually to, to coordinate on many points, including this one. Organic you know, I know you're having a meeting at the end of March. I really love yes. to have the public more involved to so like sending out notices about those meetings. I know just quarterly. I would love to get an email knowing about it because I can. I'd be happy to be involved in that process Excellent. going forward. Thirty seconds, two seconds is Reese Houses and uh, Con Ed. I'd love to follow up and talk to you about the kind of topic. And I'll see you down in the district on that. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Senator Consonary Fitzpatrick. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, thank you to the panelists. I know you've been here on the hot seat for quite a while, so thank you for your, your endurance. I have a couple of questions, uh, Doc, uh, President Harris, about your report. On page two, you talk about advancing this, the state's 70 percent by 2030 renewable electricity goal through the development of 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind, which will be in my district, the 9th Senate District, which includes Island Park and Long Beach and 3,000 megawatts of energy storage. But on the next page, you talk about the goal of having 20% of peak electricity storage, or six gigawatts, by 2030. And I'm wondering if you could explain the differences between those two statements. Certainly. Um, so our, our goal, actually part of the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act for offshore wind is nine gigawatts by 2035. Um, our energy storage goal is currently three gigawatts, but we have proposed to the Public Service Commission, consistent with the direction from the governor, an expansion of that goal to six gigawatts. So I think I might have tied out um, your figures, and that six gigawatts is really what ties to that 20% reference that you made. So if the Equinor project is delayed, uh, that's going to affect your ability to have that storage goal met, is that correct? Um, the two are separable. Um, the Equinor project is offshore wind. Uh, generation and energy storage projects are often advanced separately. Okay. And the, the goal of only 20% of storage, is that, uh, how, do, how does that make the rest of us feel comfortable if we only have 20%? Uh, to me, that's not really sufficient, but I, I'm not in your business, so I'm asking a question regarding that 20% having a storage. Is that going to give us enough backup? Certainly. Um, so this is really speaking to the ways in which we serve our peak load in the state, as well as the ways in which we have 
power generation sources that have flexibility to accommodate the intermittency of renewables. And so as we move forward, that 20% will need to be a larger and larger number as we transition to a more renewable grid. This is one step in many. Okay. Um, the New York Independent System Operator issued a report that said that, uh, you know, to consider the future needs of the electric grid along with the state's climate goals in mind. And the report indicated a need for significant deployment of admission-free resources to meet not only the state's generation needs, but the necessary distribution of generation for grid reliability. As this technology is still developing. Does the governor's budget include anything to address this? Well, certainly one aspect of the governor's um, budget really focuses on the topic of innovation, and that's a work near and dear to NYSERDA's heart. Um, we are advancing a number of resources, including long-duration energy storage, consistent with that objective. Thank you. Thank you. Assembly. Assemblyman Otis. Uh, thank you all, and uh, thank you all for your good work at your various agencies. You know, one thing we've heard today is a lot about the rollout of the Climate Action Plan, and we have the regulations, and there's a lot of uh, eager expectation about the new programs that come either from that or the Bond Act. And so keep up the good work and getting the word out and involving people in that. Um, here's some, hop, some quick ones I'll mention, and then people can comment. EV buses. We need the state agencies, OGS and NYSERDA, to reach out to school districts and give them a helping hand on their infrastructure needs. Very important because they're sort of lost out there and they're looking for help. Um, solar farmland, bad. What might be good, and, and I've mentioned it to Justin, is so, and to the, our transportation agencies, solar on the sides of highways. Other states are doing it, New York is doing it. We, it's an opportunity to get more solar in, in a way that doesn't take away um, uh, farmland. Um, environmental justice, in addition to our dollar percentages, and we heard great comments from all of you and some of my colleagues, we should really try and have your rollout of environmental justice, uh, envir uh, climate change programs in environmental justice communities first so that we're remediating issues in those areas, those census tracts that were revealed as part of the Climate Action Plan, that would be great. And my last uh, one, and then you can comment on whatever you want to comment on, is um, clean water. We have 500 million, which is great, best in the nation, um, but we really actually need more. And so I think it, what I would like to ask is between Bond Act money and federal money, if we could pump up the amount of money we spend annually on clean water, I think that that um, is matched by the interest and need out there. So I used up more of my time than I really like to, but have at it with anything that excited you. Maybe we'll go backwards um, on water. Uh, absolutely. We, we would seek to match all the $500 million that we're posing there with a billion dollars plus a year of loans with the Bond Act now, which has a, a several water categories. Right and of course all the federal money that's coming our way. Uh, a lot of that's underway. Actually, we made an announcement just a couple days ago about uh, some of that federal state um, spending for, for water, uh, including right here in Albany. Great. I don't know where to start, but I, I, I would say I do agree on your points with respect to solar in particular, as we really need to get um, more creative with our solar options. 
And, and certainly solar siting is central, smart solar siting is central to that as well. And on a school bus front, as we discussed, we're looking at programs, hopefully a statewide school bus electrification, some type of model that we can use. That's great. And Justin, give you credit, you've been down with some of the school districts in our area, hands-on to try and, and help them with some of their um, getting greener uh, goals. So thank you. thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Senator Overrocker. Good afternoon, everybody. And uh, again, you, you're, you're uh, champions for pushing through today, so I, I appreciate that. My first, um, um, not so much a question, but, but, but just some information. You know, I'm a former school bus driver. Uh, I think with uh, being with 50 kids with my, uh, to my back and, and traversing uh, school buses actually give me great uh, training to be a senator. With that being said, <laughs> the, the, the thing that I'm the most concerned about when it comes to electrified buses is the added weight that a battery bank would offer to that, 50 school kids on the back. And, and I'm talking about uh, in my very rural area, you know, hills, valleys, and more importantly, bridges that may not be weight appropriate for that. So it's something to be considered when we're talking infrastructure. Uh, I'm the ranker on transportation. There are other, some other infrastructure areas that I'm a little bit concerned about. And again, the ruralistic nature of my district offers, I think, some specific challenges. So I'm just offering that as something to think about. Um, and hopefully to help us get to that point uh, instead of uh, just, just throwing things out there. So with that being said, my next um, uh, question becomes uh, to uh, Commissioner Segus. And I want to thank you for, actually for the great job that you did through ORTA uh, with our university games. Uh, I think it was uh, a fabulous uh, uh, success, to be, to be honest with you. So, so great job there. It's always good to hear a little good news, as we say. Uh, you know, having um, myself and, and Senator Hinchy actually have one of the more premier, if you will, uh, I think ski resorts in our area, which is Bel Air. I love Bel Air. And uh, if you notice its location and, and its uh, closeness, if you will, to the city, I think it's going to be an absolute pearl and or gem mm -hmm. uh, in that area. I'm uh, very excited about the economic side of it uh, to, to, uh, to enhance that. So I will be, of course, advocating and and, and uh, pushing, if you will, for any type of um, monies that we could use to just get that, to, to be that pearl and to be that gem in that area. And, and we will not be disappointed with the way that uh, I think we'll receive the economic benefit on that. So um, I have 48 seconds and you can, again, you can uh, uh, expand upon anything else that you uh, care to do that, but thank you. Well, I'll tell you, I completely agree on Bel Air. It's a, it's a real gem and love skiing there myself. Um, uh, we put a, quite a bit of money in there last few years. It's a different Bel Air than it was 20 years ago, but we need to get it ready for the future and snowmaking snow capacity is part of that as well. As you can tell, it hasn't, hasn't been very good to us this year. Thank you. I'm a big fan of Bel Air too. Look at us. Um, with that said, um, on the electric buses, this is the reason why this 500 million that we're going to be investing, we need to really think about it carefully as to the balance of which, how much goes into buses versus how much goes into, to your point, the training, the charging, the education necessary to be successful. I've looked into this bridge issue. I'd like to follow up as I. I'm understanding school, electric school buses to not cause those issues, and I want to make sure that we're on solid ground together on that. Thank, Thanks. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Assemblyman Lamdas. Did I get any? Can you pronounce it? Lamandes. Sure. 
my first question is for uh, Commissioner Segos. How are you? Good, Good to see you. Uh, recognizing the legislative ban on fracking 2021 budget, <laughs> are there any circumstances under which DEC would reevaluate its position? No. No, we don't see a future for fracking in New York State. Even where it's been demonstrated to be safe, efficient, effective, et cetera. Well, I think our, our decision from 2014, prior to my time, um, and was was prescient in some ways. I look at the, the damage to the landscape, water supplies, um, what, what Pennsylvania, New Mexico, other states are, are now dealing with in terms of the impacts of those resources. Um, so I, I think it, uh, uh, look, we're, we're, we have those resources. Uh, the, Probably best kept in the ground here, but um, look, we'll, we'll look at, uh, uh, at all the energy mixes uh, moving forward. Recognizing your point uh, uh, and acknowledging it, the um, extractive nature of rare earth mining mm. to achieve the CLCPA goals, does, does that bother any of you? And with, with respect, even if it's been asked before, in the social aspects of the impacts on the children that are mm -hmm. doing this mining? Yes. I mean, yes, of course. I mean, you look at cobalt mining and, and uh, some of the Palmasano has raised that a few times with us. Um, yes, there's, there's significant impacts uh, in, with cobalt mining and it's an extraordinary what uh, folks in the Congo are, are dealing with there. Um, and, and my reaction is, well, we have to improve that as well. Um, but it's really uh, looking at the, the scale of impact, the environmental impact across the board the petroleum uh, extractive industries versus and spills versus uh, uh, cobalt and other rare metals, um, it, it's really uh, dwarfed um, by, by the scale of impact. Thank you. Um, President Harris, uh, the um, NYSERDA CLCPA cost-benefit analysis conducted by E3 Consulting, have those results been made available yet? Oh, yes, yes. This is uh, publicly available. It was part of our deliberations, and it's available on our um, Climate Act climate.ny.gov website. Thank you. Uh, Madam Chairman, no further questions. Thank you to the Senate. Senator Tom O'Mara. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, President Driscoll, I have a question for you uh, on your testimony. Uh, it seems that you've pretty much done an about-face from your testimony uh, in July before the Assembly uh, hearing. And, and albeit there's been changes to that proposal that's, in the, that's the way it's presented in the budget now, uh, but back in July, you were down on this because of the pretty much the lack of capacity of the power authority with manpower and expertise that you have to go out and contract for all of these things anyways. Uh, and that uh, because you weren't eligible for uh, the tax credits, uh, that you wouldn't be able to do it cheaper than the private sector anyways. Now you testified today that there's a change in those tax credits where you can get those. So now is the power authority going to have a competitive advantage that will disadvantage the private sector on their implementation and build out of the renewables that we're going to need in this state? Um, if you can address that, please. Yeah, no, thank, thank, thank you, Senator. Um, First of all, uh, you're right, uh, the IRA was a game changer <clears throat> for the public power sector and for NIPA, so uh, certainly part of the uh, equation, uh, if you will, um, fr from that point to today. Um, you know, I'd also say that uh, our focus, as you know from, from your experience, you know, we're, we serve largely governmental customers. Um, our focus is, has historically been with our own governmental customers and trying to find solutions, clean energy solutions for them. 
The IRA, of course, will enable us to better serve those governmental customers. Uh, as you probably know, in the old paradigm, uh, when we served a governmental customer with a project, there, there would be the customer, the developer, and then NIPA, because the developer would have to be in the middle to get the tax credits. Now, under this law, we can directly work with our governmental customers. That won't be true in every situation, but you know, this is an incredible challenge we're all facing. And so the, to the extent that, that we can enable these customers to be able to uh, you know, make this clean energy transition with the benefit of more economic projects, um, but, but are you, are you going to create an economic advantage the power authority has over the private sector? And, that, and, and what will the effect of discouraging private sector investment because and of it, that be? Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, there, there's so much, um, there, there's a lot of activity on the, on the private developer side. Um, as you probably know, we're looking to partner with uh, the private sector wherever we can. We have four large transmission projects in flight currently, uh, all are with partners. Um, we have exclusive jurisdiction on the transmission side. Um, we haven't crowded out anybody uh, on the transmission side, just looking for the same opportunity to, to, to play a role on the generation side like we do on the transmission side. Um, okay, let me just uh, switch gears a second with, uh, to over to the, uh, the climate action plan with uh, uh, Doreen or Basil, whoever wants to address it. You know, uh, you know we're, I think, all uh, very supportive of, of cleaning up our emissions uh, in this state uh, and have worked towards that. The state has done an unbelievable job uh, over the last cu couple of decades in doing that. Uh, but I just can't help but feel we've, we've, we've got the cart before the horse on a lot of these initiatives uh, right now. Uh, and we really have nothing but targets. And then the plan says DEC will fill in how we're going to do it. No mention of how much it's going to cost the ratepayers, uh, and since the, talking about the cart before the horse, since the closure of Indian Point, uh, right before the really cold weekend we had two weeks ago, the EPA came out with their annual CO2 emissions report, and the emissions uh, in New York State of carbon dioxide are up 28% since the closure of Indian Point. Uh, yet, uh, now during that time, the peaker plants are burning oil at apparently a record rate. The ISO does not break out their category, the fuel diversity of, of natural gas and oil. Uh, is that something that the ISO should be breaking out so we know what's oil and what's gas, since oil is certainly dirtier than, than gas? And without making some interim uh, improvements, we're going to just be using more oil in those communities that are disadvantaged by these. So um, why are we not taking other actions in the interim uh, that would help uh, not using those oil plants with cleaner burning natural gas? Well, I see that the buzzer is about to <laughs> <Lucky> ring. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a conversation we relish having with you. Yeah, sure. Yep. Thank okay. you. Thank you. So we, go, we go to Assemblyman Carroll. <clears throat> Thank you, Chair. Um, good afternoon. Acting President Driscoll, I was very happy to see that in the governor's budget she has proposed broad and sweeping authorities for NIPA to own, build, and operate renewable energy. You and I have talked about this subject a great deal. I have a couple of quick questions. The first being, 
Um, if this is to come into law, how quickly will NIPA be able to act to start building its own renewable energy? Will it build on its own, or will it immediately go to partner with other developers? And finally, you said that you cannot, we cannot put a mandate on NIPA to build um, if we are not meeting our CLCPA goals, as you confer with your colleagues. Um, why is that? I don't see why we could not um, put in very specific language that understands that you have certain obligations to your bondholders and other contracts, and as long as you're not in violation of that, NIPA should and will act. So on, on, the, on, the, latter, uh, on the latter point, I, I think you, you hit it on the head when you, when you um, mentioned the, the caveats that we would, we would want to attach to any such uh, language. Um, you could certainly uh, mandate that we build renewables uh, as long as we have some kind of discretion over where and when and with whom and for how much so that our trustees can exercise the fiduciary obligation that, uh, that the Public Authority Accountabilities Act uh, requires them to exercise. So, um, so I think I think we're we're saying. So the same you agree thing. with mandates as long as we make sure that you don't break contracts that NIPA has previously entered into. Yeah, I, I think it's a question of semantics, mandates versus uh, you know subject to discretion of the trustees. I think you know subject to the language. Um, you know, we, uh, understood. We, we could, I've got a minute. In the middle. How quickly is NIPA ready to act to build public renewables? So as soon as is, if the governor's proposal becomes law, we will begin to identify sites that can be utilized for projects. That, that could take, those projects could take all shapes and sizes. Will you they act could, on your own or will you immediately go to partner or both? It would depend on the size of the project. Larger projects are more susceptible to partner relationships so that we can leverage NIPA's dollars and, and build more and do more. Thank you so much, Mr. Driscoll. Commissioner Sagos, very quickly, trailheads in the Adirondacks, I know we need more, we need more money. I support that and I also support I know a future novel that's in your, uh, in your head that you're going to write. Um, I'll yield back the rest of my time. <laughs> Thank you. It involves budget hearings. <laughs> Senate. Senate. Thank you. I think we're up to me. So just starting out quickly, um, I believe it will be for Mr. Segos, Commissioner Segos. So quite a few of my colleagues keep referencing that New York State has to import 50% of its electricity. But the independent systems operators say we only import 18%. Which number is correct? Yes, you can turn to your colleagues. Yeah. Certainly. I, am, I will need to, to double check the energy versus electricity metrics. Um, with respect to electricity, it is definitely not 50%. Um, so I say that I would imagine that we're, we're using different um, units of measure. That would be my expectation, Senator, but we can confirm. Thank you. Oh, no, it's not. That would be helpful. Um, so the governor lays out the Cap and Invest program. What does the legislature actually have to vote on versus what is being done through regulation? I'm still confused about that. So we have broad authority right now to create the Cap and Invest program. If you think about um, the Reggie program, for example, we were able to create that without um, legislative involvement largely, um, and most of the states fell in the same bucket. Um, we expect the same here, 
when it comes to uh, the affordability component that the governor's laid out, we would expect to be engaging with the legislature on, on that to, to be able to uh, create the mechanism to put those dollars, uh, the affordability account, back into the pockets of New Yorkers. Okay. So also in that section of the budget, it appears the governor is trying to establish that the legislature just provides authority for you through regulation um, to have free allocation of pollution allowances in perpetuity and in some class of industry that you'll be defining as energy intensive and trade exposed. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, look, I support this, pro this effort, but I'm a little confused about what we're actually sign off, signing off, particularly in perpetuity. That generally makes me nervous as a legislator. So mm -hmm. what does that all really mean? Those are not words the um, energy intensive and trade exposed entities I need help to understand that. So the, I will tell you this, the, the program itself is conceptual in nature now, right? We are in the middle of uh, a give and take with the regulated industry, with the business community, with the environmental justice community to create what will then become the regulations. So it is premature to, for me to speculate as to what that will exactly look like, but you can look at what other states have done um, and the, the challenges or the successes they've had in terms of pursuing similar models. For us, uh, when we talk about the allowances, right, um, setting a cap on emissions and then using that cap effectively to create the, the auction place where allowances will be purchased and some allowances would then be uh, uh, provided at no cost in order to protect the issue of leakage. Um, energy intensive and trade exposed industries, you think about the, you know, steel mills or, you know, semiconductor manufacturers, that would otherwise leave the state uh, but for uh, some sort of uh, forbearance within the regulations that allows them to stay. So you're putting the, uh, the issue of allowances toward those type of industries and uh, the revenue being generated largely from um, industries and fuel suppliers that, that um, uh, aren't, aren't uh, in that definition. But I will tell you, Senator, it is early on this. We will be coming back to the public uh, at a very aggressive rate over the coming five months before we even get into the regulatory phase. So some people have raised the concern that the language in the budget isn't as stringent as what we actually mandated in CLCPA. So are we trying to weaken the standards that were in CLCPA or would you agree that they would need to be as strict as in order to not violate that law? We, we have we have to hit our emissions reductions targets. I mean, those are the, the, those are the critical numbers within the CLCPA enshrined in law. We worked on this, Dorian and I and our counterparts in the CAC for three years uh, to devise the path forward. The Cap and Invest program is part of that, arguably a large part of that because it is an economy-wide program required by the law. So when it comes to uh, creating this program, it has to comply with the law. Um, so I would say that when we put this on the street for public, public consumption, uh, the, the, the public will see that it is, is uh, in conformance with the CLCPA. So is creating a cap and invest program in any way interact with our moving forward with a clean transportation standard as another possibility? And would they be duplicative in some way or funnel money away from each other? Well, it, it, it I, I think it's premature to know exactly how they would uh, inter inter interact. We discussed the clean transportation standard during 
the uh, Climate Action Council process that, that, that uh, the many meetings that we had. Ultimately, the governor decided uh, what made the most sense at this time was to advance a, a cap and invest program. And as we go through that, we will look for ways in which to synchronize this program with either existing or proposed concepts that, that may be available to us, uh, the Clean Transportation Standard being one of those. But at this point, it's cap and invest. Okay. And earlier, maybe it was yesterday, will we hear that long yet? No, but earlier in your discussion, sorry. Um, you seem to answer a question, and I don't remember whose question, um, implying that Bond Act money would count as outside funding that could justify cuts in on-budget funding. I don't think that's what we told the voters. I think we told the voters the Bond Act money would be for new and different things that we need to do. So I just wanted to make sure I didn't misunderstand. That, that is true, but we have, for example, we have hatchery system, right? And there's the, the Bond Act, uh, the fish hatchery system, uh, not aquaculture, but hatcheries. Uh, we, we envision that part, portion of the Bond Act funds would go into restoring our hatchery system. I mean, those are obviously existing programs that now would be, instead of shifting through, uh, pay, being paid for on budget through uh, New York Works, that would be shifted over to Bond Act. So it's an example of how we would seek to utilize both, both on budget and off budget resources okay. within the financial plan. Got it. Um, so Mr. Driscoll, I'm, I think I'm following up on two different discussions with the role of NIPA with the new um, plants. Oops, sorry. So it is true that the NIPA proposal now is different than it was earlier and different than the legislation some of my colleagues and I carry. Um, but there's confusion, I think, about because of the new federal law allowing the use of tax credits even for government entities such as yourself, is the proposal as described in the governor's budget going to allow us to draw down the federal funds or because it's a public-private partnership tax equity investor kind of deal that we're not going to be able to get the tax exemptions that we could get now if it was a specifically state-funded project? Thank you for the question. Uh, NIPA, as a state uh, public power authority, is eligible for the IRA tax credits. So um, we would be uh, an eligible, you know, applicant on any project that that we that we owned. Um, and so I don't think that if if the question is, does there need to be state money rather than NIPA money, or does uh, it need to be state NIPA money versus private investor money? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the, the, the credit, and I'll be happy to research this further and come back to you, but I think that the credit would apply to the extent that the power authority had, had, had money in the project. Okay. I, I would appreciate that. I think some of us would because we're a little, you know, conf even though we're supporting um, the expansion, we're a little confused about which model is going to actually net us Understood. the most federal money as matching money for what we're doing. Because I. I won't speak for everyone here, perhaps not Tom O'Mara, but I think we want new renewable energy built as quickly as possible. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Sorry, yes, we agree with Tom O'Mara. We all want it done as quickly as possible, but we also want as much federal money as possible Understood. to move into these projects um, because that's obviously a win-win for us. And just the last, quickly, 
So the governor set timelines for the electric buildings, but she jumped them an extra year later because she starts them like the last day of December in each year for the larger and the smaller. So doesn't that just keep putting us farther back from where we want to be? Well, the timeline, um, yeah, thank you for asking that question. The, the timeline that is in the budget proposal allows us to align these new construction, zero emission new construction proposals with code cycles. This is, this is really sort of a practical and unexciting aspect of this, but we ultimately need to employ this through cycles that are established primarily on the national level. So we'll, we'll seek to um, institute these programs earlier, but that is the outside date according to the code cycles. Okay, so my time is up. Um, thank you very much. Assemblyman Burdick. Uh, thank you, and this is for Commissioner Segos. And, you know, I first want to thank you for the great job that your department does. Um, I've worked closely with your team, both in my prior capacity as supervisor of the town of Bedford, and more recently with um, working on grant opportunities and so forth, and they've been fabulous, and I want to thank you for that. I also was very pleased to hear about the community outreach that is being planned. I think it's absolutely what's needed, particularly for communities that may not have this, the bandwidth to, to, to get through the process. You know, I want to um, mention that I too am concerned, I think it was Senator Harkham who had mentioned, and I think others have said about concern about getting money out the door, and particularly with so much money coming in, um, you know, further. Um, and also, I wanted you to address, if you could, what I see as what I think really needs to be reconciled, which is um, the objectives of the housing compact with some of the laws and regulations that have been in place for decades to protect water quality. Um, as one of the key examples is the New York City watershed, where there's virtually veto power uh, on the part of New York City on any new wastewater treatment plant or for that matter, um, you know, a, a, you know, an expansion and, and a request for a speedies permit based on an expansion of an existing one. And this will really run into direct conflict for the ability of municipalities to expand their infrastructure. So if you could address that in the one minute and 15 seconds I have left. We'll try. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so as to your first point about bandwidth and getting money out the door, I mean, I, I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. That's exactly why the governor's uh, uh, going to give us, working with you, additional resources. Right. We need, Which we need staff support. resources. That, yep. That's really at the heart of it. Um, as to the housing compact, and I take that to mean the governor's proposal to his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.